The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. All right. Well, thanks for being here, man. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Absolutely pleasure. Tell everybody who you are and what your background is. Okay. Uh, my name is Chris Mellon, and uh, I spent about 20 years working for Uncle Sam, worked in the uh, Senate for the Intelligence Committee, and for Senator Cohen, also did some Armed Services Committee work. When he was asked to become Secretary of Defense, um, he asked me if I would like to go with him to the Pentagon, be part of his team, and I was honored and gladly accepted. So I then served for four years in the Defense Department with Senator Cohen, Secretary Cohen at that point, um, in various positions, all intelligence related and uh, and security related. And then um, I was asked to stay on after uh, Clinton departed. And so I worked for for Secretary Rumsfeld. A little bit closer. And uh, then went back to the Senate Intelligence Committee as the minority staff director shortly before the, uh, the second Iraq war. So when did you get interested in the subject of UFOs? That happened at a surprisingly early age. I was seven years old at a uh, boarding school, and the principal of the school, a friend of his, had photographed uh, video, uh, an old reel-to-reel Kodak movie camera, had taken a movie, a home movie of a video of a uh, UFO flying in Beautiful blue skies, cumulus clouds, huge golden disk that that comes into the picture and banks, goes into a cloud, and it disappears into this sort of wispy cloud in a way that would be very, very hard, I think, to to fake somehow, particularly in those days with no computer-generated imagery. And it comes out the other side and then sort of goes off over the horizon. And I was you know, stunned and flabbergasted and myself and all the other kids ran outside that night and were looking at the stars and it just uh, uh, sparked my curiosity, a lifelong curiosity. So once you got into government and once you were, I mean, you were there, you're basically there, you had to start asking questions like, did you wait a while? Like, how long did you yeah, ask for? You're sure like, did. hey, what do you guys know? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> well, uh, for a long time I waited. Um, yeah. Very rarely, I looked for openings, I looked for opportunities. <laughs> so, uh, for example, you know, the stigma is, is so great that you're reluctant, obviously, to, uh, to raise that issue. A couple times there were some natural opportunities. So uh, one of my colleagues on the Intelligence Committee was going to Hawaii for some oversight uh, trips, meetings, and he went to the Maui uh, Space Optical Tracking Facility. And I said to him, while you're there, why don't you just check and see, do they ever see anything weird they can't explain and so forth? So he did, and uh, Pete called me up and said, hey, you wouldn't believe this, I've got this videotape here. And it shows these weird things. And so uh, I talked to the Air Force people, they sent the tape to us. Turns out it was totally unclassified. Um, I showed it to Senator Cohen uh, and some others, and it ended up on, on national TV um, actually, but but didn't generate uh, any further response. Everybody just kind of threw their hands up in the air and said, "Well, you know, that's interesting, but uh, we don't know what to do with it." It was a Ted Koppel's Nightline show that this tape was played on. It showed sort of five objects moving parallel to the ground, possibly in formation. They're in the atmosphere because they're 
burning, they're interacting with something. Uh, you know, there's plasma coming off them, uh, which wouldn't presumably be happening in space, but they seem to be too slow to be meteorites. So it was mystifying and difficult to explain, never did get an answer. Um, occasionally something like that would happen. But by and large, the issue almost never arose. <clears throat> the, the, the issue is a weird issue because if you bring it up in the wrong company or at the wrong time, you could be dismissed as a loon. Did you feel that when you were there? Like as a person who had a budding interest in unidentified flying objects and, and what have you, did you feel like this is a politically risky thing to discuss, especially to discuss like in serious terms? Like do you believe in these things? Like what are they? What do we know? Is, was that an issue? Absolutely. Um I concealed my interest in the topic uh, for years <laughs> and uh, very carefully and confided to a few trustworthy friends, had a few heart-to-heart -heart talks with a couple individuals when I found a uh, fellow traveler who was interested in this topic, but by and large, uh, absolutely uh, wanted to conceal that and, and not reveal that. Did you know Clinton? No, I no? did not. He would be the guy that I would go to. There's a request you. that came to me once that I think was from President Clinton, and it was one of the astronauts claimed to have seen um, a UFO out at Edwards Air Force Base, and it was videotaped, he said, and he described this in his memoir and wanted the president to get hold of the tape, of the video. And Secretary Cohen came back to the Pentagon from a meeting and a message came down to me to go to try to find this tape. And uh, unfortunately, there was, uh, I got, got nowhere with that. The Air Force was adamant that there was no such tape, there was no such information. Anything they had on UFOs had been destroyed. Um, so I had one of these situations that's very common in this area, which is you have just two apparently credible sources, but utterly conflicting, irreconcilable information which seems to happen often in this field. Now, being as you were in government and very close to literally the machine that runs the world, what what's the general perception when people are discussing these these things in in Washington? What is what's the general perception of what what's going on with these things? Well, I'm happy to say that it's changed. That perception has changed considerably in the last few years. People feel like they have permission to talk about it. When do you think this happened? This happened after the New York Times article and subsequent press uh, beginning in 2017, December mm -hmm. 2017. And um, that sort of gave people permission to talk about this. And so I've actually had Pentagon friends who said, you know, this is kind of cool. We don't have to go in the closet to talk about this anymore. What do you think kept it in the closet before? Like, when did the stigma start? And do you think this was, like, intentionally sort of set up this way? It was. Uh, it was the Robertson Panel Commission, 1953, and they concluded during the those Cold War days that this was a, a potential threat to national security because UFO reports might overwhelm our, our air defense and communication system and that the Soviets might spook the public and somehow manipulate this issue. So they actually advocated in writing that uh, this issue be debunked and discredited, and the government uh, went ahead and did so um, 
extremely successfully, unfortunately. And this all started with the Project Blue Book, correct? Correct. It was during that era. So uh, what was the gentleman's name that was running Project Blue Book again? Um, well, there were different people. The, the guy who went on. The astronomer, Alan Hynek. Hynek. Yeah. And Hynek went on to become a believer. So he started debunking and was told, essentially, the way he reported it was that he was told to kind of debunk every single case. Everything he could find, whether it was swamp gas or, you know, ball lightning, find some way to, to explain this away. But then once he left Project Blue Book, he started openly discussing these cases and he started discussing his own belief. That's correct. And, and he felt badly burned as well because he was trying to carry out uh, his mandate that, that the Air Force had given him. As you may recall, in one instance, he went to Michigan and famously declared that the people of Michigan were misconstruing swamp gas for for flying objects. Yeah. And so Gerald Ford, who was representing that district, got incensed, as did the local population. And Congress took a fleeting interest in the topic. And uh, Dr. Hynek was very embarrassed, um, and understandably so. It was really uh, quite insulting to these to these people who had uh, had very clear sightings of these objects. So um, he did eventually um, change his view publicly and was very critical of, of Project Blue Book. Was all this stuff like being inside the government and knowing how prevalent these sightings are and how credible some of them are was it was it frustrating to you to be a part of this and to know that this information is kind of being squashed and distorted and it's interesting that <clears throat> what ha happened actually is that i wasn't seeing information squashed or distorted in the pentagon uh, or the intelligence community i saw one instance of a very technical very classified report that explained away some sightings that nobody even knew were being reported otherwise. It was kind of odd to see this explanation from uh, about an incident that had not been otherwise reported. But generally... What was this, what was this incident? Um, this was some military pilots doing reconnaissance missions who were seeing some very unusual lights. And the Directorate of Science and Technology at CIA did a extensive analysis and found a plausible explanation for for what they had seen that was not extraterrestrial. And so they published an article on that. It was a good article, a good piece of research. But the only time, that was about the only time I ever saw anything that uh, in writing about this subject, which the government said it wasn't following, it wasn't interested in. And you almost, I had friends who would call me up. I had a Navy friend who was a pilot. And he said, you wouldn't believe what happened at our base today. There was a plane up and there was a UFO flying around it and it landed and he was, you know, he knew I was interested in this from college days and he called me up with his hair on fire to tell me about this incident. But that kind of thing was not going up through channels. So people in the Pentagon, to the best of my knowledge, all the way up to the SecDef, were not hearing or seeing any of these reports. It wasn't until I met Lou Elizondo and his group and some of the Navy guys and talked to the pilots about what was happening on the East Coast from 2015 onward and the Nimitz incident that I found out that this activity had been going on and just wasn't being reported. So it, was it that no one in the Pentagon was seeking this out? There wasn't a mandate to go look for it? There, there wasn't a department that was uh, designed to seek these things out? I mean, what was the reason why it wasn't getting all the way to the Pentagon? Well, specifically in the case of the Navy in 2016, just today, I believe, or yesterday, uh, DOD announced the 
that they're going to do an IG investigation of this incident, of, of this phenomenon. What's IG mean? Issue. The inspector general. Okay. Sorry. So there's going to be an internal investigation at DOD of how they handled this UFO issue. Um, and I believe it's, this is, it's not clear yet. They just made this announcement and their motives and what sparked this are still a little bit uncertain. But it appears they're going to focus on this issue of how did this fall through the cracks for years? How is it that these guys are flying around, seeing this stuff, it's on the radar, and nobody up the chain of command is being notified? Um, policymakers, the, the Secretary of Defense himself, um, Congress, etc. It was uh, uh, just going into the ether. I mean, there was no effort made to to get support to any of those guys, and that's when I, you know, kind of threw the bullshit flag and said, "This is unacceptable." And so that's when I started jumping into this. <clears throat> Do you think it was because of the stigma that's attached to the subject that they just didn't bother bringing it to their superiors? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, people were afraid to report it. And as we saw in the Nimitz case some years earlier in 2004. Let's explain what we're talking about. We're yeah, talking about sure. Commander David Fravor and his sightings off the coast of San Diego, the tic-tac-shaped UFO that moved at extraordinary speed with no known propulsion system. They tracked it on radar. It was actively jamming their radar. It went to their uh, predetermined point that where they were supposed to Cat scramble. Point. Yeah. And so somehow or another, it had information as to where they were traveling to. Mm -hmm. Extra extraordinary capability. Went from 80,000 feet above sea level to one in less than a second. They have no idea what it is, what it does. And then the people on the Nimitz were saying they had been seeing these things. Co correct. And on the uh, Princeton. And when Dave and the, uh, the other... Uh, F-18 landed, there was no uh, interest on the part of the intelligence officers of doing anything really other than but ridiculing them. Yeah. So they came out, you know, with tin hats on and foil hats, and they were playing uh, Men in Black song or something. Yeah. But that case was phenomenal uh, because there were so many witnesses and so many different sensor systems that were verifying independently the visual reporting. So there were multiple radars, there were infrared systems, uh, perfect viewing conditions, broad daylight, middle of the afternoon, multiple aircraft, and all of the data agrees that these craft are doing things that we thought were impossible. And then there was also the thing that led them to see it in the first place, which is that he thought there was something under the surface of the ocean. Well, what happened was he was vectored he and his uh, wingman were vectored to intercept that tic-tac at that point when they arrived and looked down they saw it moving around and they saw the water roiled in fact i think first they saw the water before they saw the tic-tac they saw something unusual it looked like white water breaking on a reef kind of thing right and then they saw the tic-tac and then dave dove down to get close to it and it reacted to his presence turned around viewed him and then started uh, taking countermeasures, and it was clear to the pilots in both aircraft that this thing maintained a, a dominant position uh, throughout their engagement with it, that it could easily have, have done what it wanted to them. They had no chance, really, of, of getting behind it or getting the upper hand in that engagement. Then when he went and reported this, that's when things get weird, right? Because people have to dissect this information and look at this guy, Commander Fravor, a very respected guy, not the type of person who makes up wacky stories. Then when it's supported by all this data, 
I think that's one. That's probably one of the biggest ones that led to being included in the New York Times, right? Would Correct. You, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because it was so credible, and because was, and then there was the Go Fast video and the Flare video and all these other videos that show these things moving in extraordinary ways. Correct, and they're authentic. The Defense Department acknowledged those videos. Um, Why they, do you think they did that? I they didn't do it initially, but ultimately they didn't have much choice. And I think the reason that they that they finally did is because um, we had taken this issue to Congress. I had taken, uh, I contacted some former colleagues on the committee and said, you guys really ought to look at this. I mean, it sounds crazy, but you know, give me a chance here. And um, so a couple of them started taking interest. Some of the staffers started meeting with some of the pilots. When they started requesting briefings, that, you know, coming from the Senate Armed Services and Intelligence Committees, that went up the flagpole to the top, and the Navy brass and the senior Pentagon uh, civilians in the Office of the Secretary of Defense became aware that these committees are taking an official interest now, and uh, you know we can't fool around with this, and we have to really be straight and and put it out there. So at that point, they couldn't tell them in private, yeah, this is real, and then publicly deny it wasn't. Yeah. So so they came clean. So this is the great shift, right? The great shift in our time of from UFOs being ridiculed and being these silly things that uh, tinfoil hat conspiracy theory people believe in to the Defense Department agreeing that this is an issue. That's correct. Very interesting to me. I saw your interview with Elon Musk and he seemed unaware as He's an alien, bro. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> well, he's covering okay, maybe up. Maybe he's part of the cover-up. Yeah. Because he seemed unaware that his own government is has to taken the position that UFOs are real. That I got Elon in trouble because we smoked pot. On I the heard show. about that. And when he got in trouble, he was like his top secret clearance was in trouble, and there was a lot going on. And I think he's trying to play it straight and narrow when he's around me now. Okay. Like aliens, well, out, outrageous. I, I was advised that that uh, getting high in the program did, was, would be advised, would that be a good thing to yeah, do? Yeah, it's not a good move. Don't mm -hmm. do it. If you want to drink, that's probably a better. I'll, better I'll stick move. to the coffee. Okay, stick to yeah. the coffee. That's a good move. We want to be clear here, right? We want to be clear-headed when we discuss this because it's such it's such a an easily ridiculed thing you know it's it's one of those things like psychics and bigfoot you bring it up and people just automatically start rolling their eyes but statistically if you just look at the size of the universe and you look at the fact that there's so many goldilocks zone planets that they've already discovered and then also the the wide variety of life that exists in various conditions on Earth. Who knows, right? And who knows whether or not these things are living in the ocean? This is what's bizarre to me, is, is that a lot of these sightings, the one in Hawaii recently, and there's uh, another one that Jeremy Corbell leaked, this uh, mm -hmm. photograph that shows something disappearing into the ocean. They seem to, there seems to be multiple sightings and multiple witnesses that discuss things going into the ocean. Yeah, that is, that is absolutely true. Um, in terms of backing up on, on your, your question there a little bit, um, you know, people ask me, do you think, do you believe in aliens? And, and that's really not the question or the issue for most people. Mm -hmm. There are probably, in an infinite universe, an infinite number of alien civilizations. Right. The question is, you know, could we ever communicate with them or have contact, right? So what's interesting about that to me, in part, is that we have NSA, uh, NASA spending billions to try to find alien life, even if it's microbial. We have Yuri Milner spending hundreds of millions and supporting the SETI program. 
And meanwhile, we have these things flying around our atmosphere that we're seeing on the radar that kind of look and act like what you might expect if somebody sent a probe. Uh, If somebody followed the trajectory, we're on ourselves today. Mm -hmm. And they're doing incredible things that we don't understand. And yet the scientific community and the government have not wanted to dare to ask the question in this context that they ask every day in this other context with NASA and spend billions of dollars on. And there's no crosstalk. You know, scientifically, we would expect actually, you know, they're listening for these signals from outer space, but it's more efficient to send probes and it's safer. And that's what we are doing ourselves. Right. And so that's what would probably be more likely um, a probe would give more information. It wouldn't reveal the, the location or the source of the, the civilization that was sending it. Um, you know, it's more dynamic and versatile. It could get closer to the target, et cetera. There's all kinds of advantages, including energy. And it would be easy for a civilization uh, more advanced than ours. We're getting on the cusp of this ourselves to create, using artificial intelligence, probes that were self-sufficient, launch them out in whatever numbers, let them go see what they find and report back. And that's, that's entirely plausible. There's no scientific reason for thinking that that couldn't happen. Moreover, if even one spacefaring society started to expand outward as we are in our galaxy, in the Milky Way, within a tiny fraction of the lifetime of the Milky Way, they could explore and colonize the entire galaxy. So even if you know, they haven't achieved superluminal travel. They can't violate the speed of light um, and, and go faster than that. If they went, say, 20% the speed of light and just continued to steadily expand their domain and explore outward in the space of two or three million years, they could have uh, gone from one end of the galaxy to the other. So, you know, it's not an unreasonable proposition. It's a question of, of getting the facts. And, uh, it's about time some of us think that we, we take it seriously and, and start looking at it. Do most people who look at this believe that this is some sort of a probe? Like when you look at the Tic Tac video. Well, Dave himself says it's not from around here. It wasn't made yeah. here, not made by us. And he doesn't propose to say where it's from. Some people suspect, as you suggest, that it could be ultra-terrestrial. It could be something inherently from our planet under the ocean that's been here for a long, long time, perhaps a uh, way station that some AI established that just is a, it's a waypoint here and it monitors what's going on in this planet and stays under the ocean, comes out, looks around, reports back, and just has been doing that for thousands of years, but um, not aliens coming and going. There's all manner of, of theories. That's, that's one of them. But uh, I would say that on the inside, the people that are really close to this in the Pentagon, they face the dilemma we all face, which is what hypothesis can explain what we're seeing that is prosaic, that doesn't involve either extraterrestrials or ultra-terrestrials or something like that? It's very hard for us to believe that the Chinese or the Russians are that far ahead of us in such basic technology, such fundamental technologies. Perhaps it's true, and that's got its own set of problems, but either way, we need to get to the bottom of it. That's, that's my position, at least. 
Yeah, there's some of these things that it's not outside the realm of possibility that's a drone. Like the the most recent sure. video, the pyramid-shaped objects that are flying around. Like well, you you've seen that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. What was your take on those things? You know, it's I want to see the rest of the data. They've got radar data on that. And from the radar data, they should be able to gain some real insights as to where these things are coming from and going to, trajectories, speeds, all that kind of thing. That hasn't been released, right? That has not been released. There's, they're still analyzing that. I don't think that they will comment publicly on that, unfortunately. But they do have that information and, um, and other information. So we should be able to gain some insights. It's entirely possible that they are drones. Um, Tyler Rogaway is a, a brilliant analyst um, of, of aviation issues who works for the war zone. He's written a very lengthy piece making that, uh, uh, making that assertion. Um, could be right. I'm, uh, I'm a little skeptical. Um, but we'll see. That's, so? that's why we need more data. What do you say? Well, the duration of, the f- of flight was far longer than drones routinely can What can was the duration? Perform. Hours. So typically... Um, if it's um, an electric drone, it has a very short uh, flight time. These things, these these ships were 100 miles off the coast in conditions of low visibility, and so whoever was operating these things uh, was traversing a long distance. Probably uh, there were only a few other ships in the area, um, and they know what those ships were, and they deny that that they were operating these craft. Um, so they were in the air a long time. They were very um, rigorous and in the manner in which they operated as as a unit they clearly intended to get our attention they were operating in a manner that suggests they were trying to provoke our air defense uh systems see how we would react you know maybe see what frequencies we start communicating on what we what actions we take and so forth it's the kind of thing we sometimes do ourselves to to potential adversaries to help game the situation out so you know, I, I have a completely open mind on it. I just want to see the evidence. But there's some features of this that uh, if they are drones, um, they're probably more advanced than anything we have. Now, one of them was flashing, right? Jamie, see if you can find that video. Is that your breathing? That is. I was trying to figure out what that noise was. See if you can find that video. I've had my COVID test. It's not no, that. I don't think there's anything wrong with you. I was just I was trying to figure uh, out what that one was. Like the flashing light. Yes, that one. Okay. Yeah. Have you seen? You know, we'll I've seen yeah. that, and it looks like it's flashing sort of the way an airplane would. Right. That's at the why. Same rate, and that's. But what's odd about that is you're in a, a restricted military airspace. Commercial aircraft have transponders. You would know if they were commercial aircraft. They're on. They've got. They're looking at the radar picture, so they would know from that if it's a commercial aircraft. Um, it, it's hard to, to understand if it was uh, a, a commercial aircraft of some kind or even a private plane, why they wouldn't be able to identify it. Yeah, well, the flashing, I mean, th- yeah, see, you can see it here. So this is uh, the leaked footage, courtesy of Jeremy Corbell. So, like, you see it. Now, either it's reflecting something that's flashing off the ship or it's flashing itself, and there was three of them that they tracked, right? I think that's the right number, yeah. The thing about these things is, yeah, yeah, it's extraordinary, it's crazy looking, it's, it's weird to see these pyramids floating through the sky, but they're not moving like the Tic Tac. It's not doing something that we can't do. It's just, you see them move around, it's, it's really weird, 
but it's um this it's not definitive right. evidence of anything at this point it's strange it's peculiar that it's happening around a warship yeah and that our guys don't know what it is and it looks like some of these things are entering and leaving the water which is yeah really peculiar um so it's an example of the kind of thing that that we just haven't been looking at that's going on we've been blowing off right and now we're finally getting some traction and getting the government to say you know yeah we probably really ought to pay attention to this do you think that there is a more fr there's more frequent sightings or do you think they're being reported more now there are certainly more reports coming in civilian and military um, the technology uh, that we have today is leaps and bounds over what we had even a few years ago in terms of resolution distance range all those kinds of things um, the, the latest generation of radars that are being deployed are a huge step forward from what was in the fleet just years a few years ago so that is probably leading to some reporting that we didn't have before things that were out there but the radar cross-section was so low they weren't appearing on people's scopes so i think it's probably a mixture of things but what is concerning in part is that some of this activity is more in your face kind of stuff mm. it's more like not, not elusive you know on the right. edge you see it and it flies away it's coming to a nuclear power station and buzzing around it and and staying there it's coming around these warships and making a point of being seen it's coming to a uh, air force base in guam and doing the same thing yeah um so that's that's new and that's a little concerning and haven't there been reports of them showing up around missiles and doing something with the launch codes or stopping stopping the the power from working in in these places or something along those lines some sort of manipulation of of the power systems almost to let you know yeah this is one of the most provocative and fascinating and important stories in this whole uh in this whole area of ufos and national security and we have retired air force officers who've testified to this and there are foia documents that support these claims but the Air Force has never been asked by Congress or anyone to address this. They've never acknowledged it. There's an opportunity to do that now, and I think it's long overdue. This is, this is stunning, if it's true. I mean, this is the backbone of our nuclear deterrence strategy. It's really the crown jewels of our, our freedom and independence and, and uh, ability to deter nuclear powers like Russia and China. You know, this is kind of the ultimate insurance policy militarily that we have. And if someone can come in there and turn these things off, um, that's, it's just shocking, absolutely shocking. So it's it, because of the stigma, Congress has been unwilling even to ask the question, even in private, um, even though this is very well documented and these people have come out uh, in their retired you know, uniforms and things and with their uh, documentation showing where they were assigned. and. In one of these cases, um, out at Malmstrom Air Force Base, I believe it was, there's a good book because the local sheriff was responding to so many calls from civilians in the area to UFOs that were being seen and encountered. He co-authored a book on what was happening. So there's a lot of data about this, but yet there's no official confirmation that that occurred. Yeah, the, the sheer volume, I, I would like to know whether or not they are increasing in volume or whether or not it is just a, an increase in our ability to detect them. And we we don't really know, right? It's because it's been 2017, so it's not that long ago, four years when it really started being something that people were uh, willing to take seriously. 
are willing to because of the New York Times article and because you know there's just a few videos that are pretty extraordinary the go fast video when you, you hear the pilots going what the fuck mm-hmm. and you're watching that thing buzz across the water with no heat signature mm-hmm. yeah the in terms of reporting there has definitely been an increase a surge the last 12 or so months and you see this on the public side with uh organizations that track these things, the Mutual UFO Network and so forth, they've had a surge of maybe 20%. Some people think, well, maybe it's COVID, more people are outside looking at the night sky. That could be some of it. Um, There are more reports that are coming with video and photographs these days. If you look at these websites, New Fork and MUFON from, say, 10 years ago, uh, not so many people had cell phones in their pockets. Routinely now, you'll see very strange photographs and, and videos. Frequently, most of the time, there's a prosaic explanation, but, but not always. And um, so I, my sense is that there's probably a little bit of both going on, uh, more activity. Some of it's a little bolder than we've seen in the past, and, um, but also better instrumentation to, to record this. Another thing that's happening, certainly on the government side, this is the big thing, is that people are less afraid to report it. So there was a lot of stuff going on. We don't know how much because nobody was reporting it. And I've been in meetings with people um, at, uh, at the Pentagon with guys who were commander of an AWACS aircraft, for example. And they'd say, yeah, you know, we saw some really weird stuff, but we weren't telling anybody about it. You know, we tore up the files. Um, yeah. Guys at the National Security Agency or other places who said, I kept a book of, uh, you know, anomalies, weird things. And then I didn't turn it over to my replacement. I just tore it up. So we have blinded ourselves. Um, we've done this to ourselves, and we're playing catch up now. Well, unfortunately, some people are full of shit, and that muddies the water, right? Some people do make absolutely, things up. absolutely. That didn't help for sure. Yeah. What do you think about mass sightings? Like, what, what was your take on, like, say, the Phoenix Lights? Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, and there are a number of these mass sighting cases, and not just in the U.S. Um, there was a soccer match in Italy, reportedly with 10,000 fans at a stadium. The game came to a screeching halt, and people watched this thing overhead. Um, there have been some mass sightings in Brazil and other places. The Phoenix case, what I find most intriguing about that, one of the things, is that Fife Symington, the governor of Arizona, who's a former Air Force officer, himself said after the fact he saw this thing, and it was not a plane, it was not flares, as some of the Air Force contended. And that was the triangle-shaped object right. that was enormous. He said it was uh, at least a football field long, maybe several football fields. Correct. Yeah. Huge. And hundreds, if not thousands of people saw this. A number of they people They had very similar videos. sightings, yeah. Yeah, very similar. And it was coming down from, there was quite a path of sightings. So before uh, Phoenix, Is there a video? I'm sorry to interrupt you. Is there a video of the triangle? Not that I know of. I've, I've not seen it if there is. The videos are all just the lights that are in the sky, right? Yeah. 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 And Once they I've said that they were flares, but they're hovering. Right. Yeah. And Because uh, it so, takes a long time for, the, I mean. The, there were flares out that night, and so that muddies the waters, right? They're, I think they determined there were actually some aircraft doing an exercise to drop some flares, but uh, this seems to be something apart from that, at least, uh, what Fife Symington and, and many others reported hard to reconcile with the flare flare exercise. Well, the problem with the flare analogy is unless the flares were suspended with balloons where they were slowly lowering from the sky, it doesn't make any sense because they're hovering. 
Yeah. Like, I mean, they might have been flares suspended by balloons and slowly making their way down. But, you know, like, see if you can find the Phoenix Lights video. It's it's weird because if they would just drop flares, they would drop. They would drop with speed of gravity. It would be normal. I mean... Well, in some cases, people also saw this, these lights moving in formation. Yeah. So... You know, as far as I know, flares don't do that. I've seen flares, and that's not what I observed. And this was what the '90s? Was this the '90s? Uh, this was eighty, late '80s, I believe. Was it? And you know, drone technology back then was pretty unsophisticated, right? Correct. Um, the kind of drones that we have now. So here it is. Like, get the fuck out of here. That's not flares. <laughs> like those things are not dropping. They're just hovering there. Yeah. It's very strange. Yeah, I mean, flares, it, it doesn't look like flare, flare to me, also, the way flares illuminate, right? the way they radiate light. Um, well, it could be some different kind of flare. Possibly. I mean, it could be instead of a flare, it could be some sort of massive LED light. Because the, this, the sheer size, too, when you look at them hovering over the city, you have to take into account that, if you look at that image right there, you have to take into account everything you're looking down there is buildings and windows and street lights and all that jazz. Those things have to be massive to make that much illumination while they're in the sky. Yep. If you just had a flashlight and you were hanging a flashlight in the sky, like what, what is that, a thousand feet in the air or so? Who knows? Whatever it is. Probably a thousand feet. A couple thousand feet. If you had a couple thousand feet up in the air and you had a flashlight, you could barely see that thing. Absolutely right. Yeah, no way. You, you wouldn't see it like that. Whatever yeah. that is hovering over that city, that's bizarre. And whatever that is, it was seen by people... Uh, hundreds of miles in both directions. Yeah. So it wasn't just Phoenix. It was reported, and in the, in the sequencing uh, all all fits. In terms, there was something that appeared to be flying down from Nevada, entered northwestern Arizona, continued over Phoenix, and and then down south. And people along that pathway were reporting this. Hundreds of people. Yeah. And this, we were watching the video. It just stays there, like it's not dropping. Yeah. And uh, this one's not moving, which is curious too. Yeah, if it was going to drop, it would, I mean, if it was just dropped out of a plane as a flare, I mean, for sure, it'd be way lower by now. <laughs> like, those things are flying, whatever that is. Look the, at her. The flares I out. have seen in military <laughs> exercises dropped pretty steady, pretty steady rate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's pretty clear. That's you know, it looks like something dropping. That's yeah. something hovering. Um, there's there was a few other ones that that have taken place the the African school children the, the children Ariel yeah that's yeah. a that's a crazy one it is crazy and there are other cases like that there's a case very similar in Australia um, supposedly thousands of people were witnesses hmm. to that event and there were dozens uh, at least fifty school children who who saw this thing and teachers um, but yeah that's really bizarre and that that's part of the the challenge with this phenomenon is you get into these areas very quickly and uh it makes it even harder to have the discussion yeah it makes it harder for government people politicians and others to engage it reminds me a little bit of uh galileo when he was before the inquisition for claiming that uh you know, it's a heliocentric uh, solar system. We're going around the sun. And he said, you know, just look through the telescope, guys. Come on, look through the telescope. You'll mm -hmm. see if you... They wouldn't look through the telescope. <laughs> when, you, when you bring this yeah. issue up, a lot of people just stop right there. They don't want to hear anything else. They don't want to talk anymore about it. They're done. Yeah. So it's it's a challenge. <clears throat> I do think there has been a shift. Um, and I think um, 
I, I I agree with you that the big one was the New York Times, but I also think uh, the Bob Lazar documentary was a big one too, because when you listen to Bob talk over long periods of time and you you hear him describe what it is that he saw, what he supposedly worked on in the late '80s, and the way he described the propulsion system, which is exactly the same way that Tic Tac thing moves, that's what's bizarre. It's like in the other one, was it the FLIR video? Which mm-hmm. which video where it turns sideways before it takes off? That's Gimbal. Gimbal, I'm sorry. Yeah. When you watch that video, you're like, what? Is, that, the one it's, where it's rotating? Yeah. That's Gimbal, yeah. What's really uh, also interesting about Gimbal is that off the screen, there's a formation of UFOs flying towards the Gimbal and the Navy aircraft that are there. And when you hear the one guy remark, one of the pilots, he says, look, dude, there's a whole fleet of them out there. That's what he's referring to. Oh. There was a V-shaped formation of these objects approaching the gimbal, which then veered away and flew off. And See, they don't have any idea what those were. Yeah, the the gimbal one is weird. Um, and I've, I've seen people try to debunk it, too. And it's a, it's so strange when people try to debunk things that you really can't explain. So here you see this thing move. It's moving. And then at one point, it turns sideways. So they're switching between different ways of viewing it. And they're trying to figure out what it is. But they're real, this is just, what is this, infrared? Is that what this is? Correct. Forward-looking infrared radar. And so they're, they're tracking it, trying to figure out what it does, and then you see it rotate. Mm-hmm. And that's bizarre. Yeah, and there's a strong headwind, so it can't be a balloon. I mean, yeah. the headwind's like 120 knots or something. It's um, just so... It's and so... then off-camera, as I said, you've got this formation approaching, yeah. this V-shaped formation of craft, and they don't have transponders either. And what the hell are they doing in there? And did they airspace. get footage of the formation? Uh, I don't believe so. Now, how does I... this footage get out? Did somebody leak it? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but leak... Leak uh, sounds pejorative. Uh, let me try to put a positive spin on okay. this. Somebody... Released it. Uh, yeah. They went through a proper process, and it came with documentation that said approved for public release. It wasn't mm-hmm. like it just went out the back door. The rub in part is that public affairs didn't know about it, so they got their nose out of joint. But it actually had gone through an official review and, and had documentation saying approved for public release. Wow. That's interesting. I wonder why they've decided to approve that for public release. Uh, well, there were some people on the inside who were worried that this issue was was not getting any attention and um, were very concerned about what was happening, very concerned about the national security situation. Uh, I had actually introduced Lou Elizondo, who was leading a small effort in the Pentagon to try to track this this activity, uh, to two people that were, who were direct reports to General Mattis. And so when I first found out this was going on and, and it was falling through the cracks, I thought, well, maybe we can get this up to the front office and at least make them aware. And unfortunately, after several meetings and bringing pilots in, um, these individuals became aware that, that, yes, indeed, something is happening, but they were, confer- they were concerned that General Mattis might be contaminated politically from even taking a briefing. They were very protective of his, uh, his reputation and his stature, which is understandable. You mean contaminated if he took a briefing? If he took it, just from hearing the briefing. Okay, that, so just... people would question his Right, what is it, crazy? Yeah. Yeah. Got it. So they didn't want that to happen, and this was kind of happening out of normal channels, which are suffocating in the Defense Department. Normally, any memo to go to the SecDef has to get routed 
through like 14 or 17 different offices all have to approve. And if they have mm. a question, it stops the process and they have to be briefed and convinced to sign on. And then it goes into a line with thousands of other packages. So <clears throat> this is an attempt to sort of expedite this and get, get it to a senior level. Is that one of the more extraordinary things about the fact this stuff is being released, the fact that everything generally does have to go through so many levels, that they are kind of throwing their hands up in the air and going, look, we have to do something or say something? Well, there were a few, uh, I won't call them whistleblowers, but there were a few people who were very concerned and willing to take this out of normal channels because it wasn't even, it wasn't even that, that people were having trouble moving it along. It wasn't going anywhere. Nobody, NORAD didn't even know. Hmm. The North American Aerospace Defense Command was not even being notified that this was happening right off the coast. Now, when you look at the gimbal video, did did they have some sort of a radar on this before they went and tried to meet up with it? Like, how, how did they find out where this thing was? I don't know in that case. I know for certain in the case of, um, of the Tic Tac um, in 2004 with Commander Fravor that the Princeton was guiding them with its Aegis radar to the intercept point and tracking it afterward when it went to the cap point. In this case, I suspect it was a ship uh, guiding them, but they, it may have been their onboard uh, radars because they have very sophisticated radars. And the pilots that I've spoken with out there said, we would see these things all the time. Yeah. Uh, we'd see the, the radar, see them showing up on radar all the time. And a couple of times guys just went to investigate for themselves. They had enough fuel or coming back from an exercise and said, I'm gonna go check that thing out. And mm. um, so I'm not sure in this particular case, which, which it was, but um, it could have been either. I think to take something to take into consideration is the vast expanse of the ocean, too. I mean, if you were going to try to hide something, you know, as it were in plain sight, there's no better place to do it than the ocean. Right. I mean, right. there's nothing out there. Right. And it's mostly a desert, a, a giant wet desert, right? Yeah, it's vast and largely unexplored yeah. and unknown and inaccessible. We do have the ability to, uh, if we become interested in a particular area, to really do some serious reconnaissance underwater. Um, we have resources, but again, somebody has to make a decision. How specific do we have to be in terms of like, it's not like they can look at the entire Pacific Ocean, right? Certainly not. But, you know, with, with bottom scanning, sonars and things like that, they can cover pretty large areas. Um, so and in do, the case do of the Nimitz- from a, from a ship? They can do it from ships. They can do it from submarines. They can do it from various kinds of platforms. And uh, but would it be like being in California on a plane trying to look at the entire country? No, I mean in, in the case of the Nimitz, for example, they had a lat long where they had the intercept, so they had a very precise location. And looking under the lat ocean, long being latitude, and longitude. latitude and longitude, where where that incident occurred, where they vectored the jets to, so. Looking a few square miles around that area would have been very feasible. That would have been feasible, a few yeah. square miles. Yeah, but I mean, with a, it depends on how much resolution you want. So if you want really precise resolution, there's always a trade-off then in the time it takes to cover an area. Right. And um, so they could do a larger area more quickly at a lower resolution. But to, to really look closely and carefully, you know, the sonar underwater sounds like a radar kind of, but when it's focused, it can give you a very... A strong picture of what you're looking at and it can also you know detect uh, metal it'll react you know bounce off more strongly you get a stronger signal and things so they can 
do a pretty efficient search uh, if they want to. That's assuming that this thing is still going to be there, and also right. if it were, or if there was, some, if there was still something down there that it doesn't recognize that they're there, like the Tic Tac did, and block their tracking, which it did, right? Correct. Yeah. Uh, there was there was interference. Um, I th- not with Dave, I think, but at the cap point where uh, uh, yet another F-18 the same day went out, Chad Underwood. Uh, that's when they got video of it, that's right? That's when they got the FLIR video, and he could not get a lock on. And uh, as I recall, he felt his system was being interfered with. Yeah. Um, so what I was getting at, though, is it's not like we can drop something in the Pacific Ocean and, and get a detailed map of the entire ocean. No. Hell, hell no. No. Yeah. yeah. Impossible. Right. They, they kind of would be like looking at the entire country from California in a plane. Like there's, you're going to miss a lot. There's yeah, no way you're going to see the whole thing. What's interesting, I mean, from overhead imagery now, even commercial imagery with artificial intelligence, you know, we're able to pretty much map the world every day. And if you have a particular profile you're looking for with these computer algorithms, you can search all that imagery fairly quickly. So the reconnaissance capabilities are extensive and you can uh, cover large areas, particularly if you're looking for a particular thing and you can describe it well. So that if it sees a match, if the computer sees a match, it it identifies it. Mm. Uh, There is a lot, there's just mountains of data coming into this panoply of sensors that we have from thousands of miles out in space to closer in space to the air, ground, sea, undersea. Um, there's a layer, uh, a mesh network around the entire planet, essentially. Except in the ocean. Well, in the ocean we have sensors, but it's not the same kind of coverage. We kind of have to get lucky. Yeah, I mean, certain certain areas are very closely monitored. Choke points, for example, mm-hmm. are going to be natural places you're going to want to look carefully. Um, and certain kinds of things are, are going to give a, a pretty strong signature. But that gets off pretty quickly into the area that um, is confidential, the government keeps confidential. I bet they do. But I would imagine, though, that if I was an alien, I would definitely hide in the ocean. I would say that's that's the move. Just be a great place to do yeah, it. You and fly around in there. There was a sub uh, accompanying the Nimitz carrier battle group, and it didn't detect anything in the water. So there may be an ability to, to move underwater uh, and remain undetected, much as there's an ability in the air to, to uh, go at supersonic speeds without creating a shockwave. Right. Whatever this technology is, it has some very unusual properties. Yeah, that's the bizarre thing, right? The supersonic speeds. And then that brings us to Lazar's depiction of how these things worked, that they somehow or another bend gravity, these things that he worked on, which is the model that's on the desk there. That's uh, supposedly a detailed model of what that thing looked like that he worked on. The sport model, I think they called it. That's what he called it, yeah. yeah. When you watch him talk and you hear him give his description of his time working there and what he saw and what he thinks those things are, what was your take on that? I thought it was curious and interesting. I mean, I've been to Area 51. I didn't see any flying saucers or any thing like that. What did you see? <laughs> I saw uh, Defense Department uh, uh, experiments being performed and, and training activities and that sort of thing. Nothing that the taxpayer would uh, uh, object to. 
But of course um, not. But it's a big range. There's a lot of stuff going on out there, and there's right. a lot of adjacent ranges. Uh, if you look at Area the map, four where he was. That's what he said. Yeah. yeah. That's what um, he said. What I, I found his explanations curious. Um, yeah. How so? The the complexity of it, uh, and the fact that he talked about Laurentium, for example, and then decades later, it turns out that um, apparently there is a more stable form of that than that's element one fifteen. Sounds right. I couldn't yeah. tell you for but sure. But it's called Laurentium. Laurentium. That sounds like something from Battlestar Galactica. You know, we need the, the this, Laurentium. All this stuff to power takes you ship. into that. Yeah. Right. Right. So uh, now I I'm a little skeptical about his claims. I have to say, um, a friend of mine uh, claims to know the the gal who was his supervisor when he worked out there and knows what he was was actually doing and where he was located. Um, and claims that uh, that he was a guy who checked radiation on badges. That's it. Yeah. And so uh, all the rest is fiction. According to that story. Um, and this is a person that you know. Yeah. Maybe that person's full of shit. Maybe. How about that? You know, I, yeah, I don't have the ground government. truth on this. Yeah. But it's but interesting. I, but I, he did falsify his educational records, and he's been involved in some other things, and uh, and it just doesn't. You're talking about the what? MIT records? Yeah. Yeah. He explained that to me. He said that he was working on something for the government at, and they sent him to MIT to learn something. And he, I, I can't say too much. I'll tell you off air because he told me not to talk about it. But it makes more sense when you hear his description of it that essentially it wasn't documented that he was studying there because what he was doing was really a terrible thing, a terrible experiment they're working on. When I explain it to you, maybe it'll make more sense. Okay. Maybe not, though. Maybe he's full of shit. Maybe they, he lied about that. What's interesting, though, is he's told the same exact story since the late 80s, and he doesn't seem full of shit. Now, some people are really good at lying, and uh, you know I've been tricked before, and I'm sure you have, too. There's some people that are just sociopaths. They're really good at... Yeah, they don't even like know they're lying. They're yeah. like convinced in their own head why they're spinning it. He's obviously though he's obviously very intelligent and he obviously knows a lot about science. He knows a lot about mm -hmm. propulsion systems and and he really did work at uh, Los Alamos, which is interesting because he's actually on the employee roster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they tried to say that he didn't. He knew people that were there, he knew the layout of the building. When he went there with George Knapp, they went through the building, he knew exactly where everything was and he knew the people that worked there. So he really did work there, apparently, mm -hmm. allegedly. His story, it, what's interesting to me is that, again, it's the same story over and over and over again. And then what's also interesting to me is that he knew and took friends to a place where they were testing these things out. And he knew where it was, and he knew when they were doing it, and he brought his friends out there, and that's when they got arrested. And yeah, I it's a very, uh, I think there's some consistency there. Mm -hmm. um, that is hard to explain. How would he know where to go and right. what was going on? Um, there are some possible answers to that. I've poked into this a bit. Um, supposedly, there was a bar off base where the scientists and a lot of the aviators and people would go and hang out. He was a frequent, frequented that place and picked up information. So, you know, I, I hear stories on both sides of this. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what the what the ground truth is, and uh, uh, I, I I remain skeptical. But yeah, you know, hey, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. I enjoyed his company. 
I, I went to dinner with him and Jeremy, and uh, I talked to him for several hours uh, on the podcast and off the podcast. I uh, I don't know, you know. I don't, but it's a it's a weird one because he never made any money doing that. He never made any money telling that story. I'll tell you another story offline. We can exchange oh, stories boy. offline. I'm excited. I can't wait for this to be over now. Um, what other stories are compelling? We talked about Travis Walton, who is uh, I got a Travis Walton bobblehead, ladies and gentlemen, from Travis himself. And Travis is the uh, the man whom the movie Fire in the Sky uh, was created about his event that happened in uh, Arizona, correct? Correct. When he was uh, working for a logging company and encountered an object and went missing for several days and came back with this fantastic story of being abducted by aliens. Yeah, I had the, uh, the pleasure of meeting him once uh, with my, two of my boys and um, listened to his story and, and read the book and so forth. And uh, it seems credible, you know, it, it, as incredible as it is, he was missing for those five days. No one's ever found any explanation of where he was. There was a full manhunt going on. There were like six or seven other guys who saw the UFOs, saw this beam strike him. Uh, he's told the same story for years. Um, it's, you know, I asked him a couple of questions and he, he gave quick, rapid answers. Of course, he's been telling this story for a long time, but he didn't sound like someone who had to pause and, you know, try to, what am I going to say with this? You know, he seemed very natural talking about it. Um, According to that story, as you know, he uh, woke up on an examination table, lashed out. These beings were examining him. He runs into the hallway, runs into another room, and these uh, very Nordic-looking individuals come in and settle him down and escort him out and so forth. And days later, he wakes up next to a road hundreds of miles from where he was last seen. Um you know, what do you do with a story like that? It's just so it's so hard to independently confirm anything. Yeah, there's nothing that contradicts his story that that we have, uh, but it's not possible to confirm it. So it goes into a category of which there are a great many wild, incredible stories like that that yeah. that really make you scratch your head. Um, you there go. are some where there's a little more evidence. Uh, there's the Cash Lundrum case here in Texas, for example, where uh, a family was severely irradiated. They saw a UFO blocking the road, stopped, got out of the car. Um, it fried some of the paint. They ended up in the hospital, you know, serious radiation poisoning. Sued the Defense Department, thinking it must be some DOD project. Uh, DOD swarping down, it wasn't theirs, and, and lost the, uh, uh, they lost the case. What year was this? Uh, 70s or 80s i i'm not sure it's cash lundrum you know you can find it on on wiki it's it's public knowledge but there are any images of their car excuse me was there images of their car i believe so i fried i believe so yeah well i'll look at that i i don't i'm not aware of that one i hadn't heard that one before yeah that's you know there there are a number of cases actually like that where people are um, visibly uh affected and physically ill and have uh, you know, red marks on their skin and uh, very ill. And they're not well known, those cases. I but see this, not a, not a car. This is the burn on their hands? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I, when I say fried, I mean, I, I heard the paint was damaged. Um, 
I don't know if there's... And this was where in Texas? This was uh, Dayton, Texas, near Dayton, Texas, which is a couple or three hours uh, west of here. Huh. Three live in pain and terror after attack by a blazing UFO. Is that from the Inquirer? Oh, they lost their hair. Damn. Yeah, typical radiation uh, yeah. effect. Very so, strange. Very strange and very well documented. The doctors, the medical reports are all there. Uh, nobody has a, a good explanation for it. And um, you know, there are other cases like that, actually quite a few. Strange A lot of them are stuff. when people are driving, right? There are a lot. There are many cases of uh, yeah. driving, and often the cars cut out. Yeah, engine stops. Um, yeah, one of my favorite ones is Betty and Barney Hill, and uh, there's a woman named Angela Hill who's a top UFC fighter, and her grandfather is Barney Hill, and Whoa. I didn't even know until after I was done talking to her. Then she explained it to me. Huh. I was like, "What?" So I'm yeah. like, "All right, next time." We do a podcast. I, you got to tell me about your grandpa. I saw Mrs. Hill one time on an old TV show called um, Truth or Lies or something like that. And they would put people on a polygraph test on the show. They'd bring them out, interview them, tell your story. Then they did a, a polygraph right there and, and gave the result to the audience. And Mrs. Hill came out and passed it with flying colors. She stuck to her story about yeah. the whole abduction. Passed the lie detector test, and I think she'd taken them before. The other um, problem with, I have with that is hypnotic regression. Hypnotic regression is very odd, right? Because uh, you can sort of suggest memories to people. I don't know what the hypnotic regression was like, you know? There, there's, a, there's a problem with suggesting things to people in various states of vulnerability that those things become false memories. It's really common. Like the, you know as well as I do, right? The human memory is this incredibly flawed thing. And so if you're in a state like hypnosis and someone starts suggesting to you that perhaps you were involved in some incredible experience and so was your husband and this is what he saw and this is did you see something similar and then I don't know. I'm just guessing. I just have a problem with hypnotic regression. You know? uh, you're right to have those concerns. I think most cases of uh, alleged abductions that rely on that, you can't you can't really assign any credibility to it. Right. What was interesting about the Hill case was that they had a uh, an individual who was trained and uh, did not believe in this phenomenon, was not trying to lead them to to that outcome. He was a military guy. Um, and it was before this was a thing. Before yes, the that's what's interesting about so it. So that's the first that, one of those. Yeah, right. so that, that had more credibility. Since that yeah. time, I think there have been real problems, serious problems with a lot of the uh, hypnotic regression cases. What's your take on John Mack? Well, that, you know, is a, a case in point. I mean, yeah. I've heard that uh, uh, questions about that. Um, interestingly, we he should went, explain who John Mack was. Sure. Dr. Mack was a Harvard psychiatrist and faculty member, and he uh, began studying people who felt thought they had been abducted and became persuaded eventually that this was really happening to them in some cases, not all cases, but in some cases he believed they really were having these experiences, or at least they sincerely thought they were. I'm not sure he necessarily went to the point publicly of saying, yeah, I think aliens are coming down and scarfing them up, but I think these people are telling the truth as they understand it. And... Um, you mentioned the case, the aerial case, in the former Rhodesian Zimbabwe. Uh, he traveled there, interviewed the kids. You can see this 
in the documentary The Phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, there's good coverage of that. You can see Dr. Mack in the movie and get a sense of him as a person. He seems gentle and kind and thoughtful. Um, but I have heard a lot of uh, questions have been raised about his his hypnotic regression technique, which is what he mostly relied on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's I've heard the same. The, the problem is when someone becomes a believer, right? And then confirmation bias. They're looking for something. So easy to do. Yeah. So easy to do. And it's one of those subjects. It's so, for whatever reason, it just hits that part of the brain that wants to believe. I, I don't think there's another subject on earth other than maybe possibly religion that hits that, that part of the brain like the alien abduction or UFO phenomenon does. Well, I think it is like religion. I think it is a desire to connect to something greater, yes. bigger, to the beyond, right. uh, infinitude, um, immortality. I think yeah. it relates to all those things. And it, there's a innate desire people have, and that is going to influence a lot of the reporting. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate that we don't have like a lock-down, rock-solid lie detector test. Or you could give it to someone and go, how much do you really remember? Like, tell me what you remember. Let me see inside your brain. Yeah, I think we're pretty close to that, actually. Yeah. What do you think? I think think there are some tests now that um, they're not being used for that purpose, but the government's done a lot of research. And I think there are things right now where they can see, kind of understand what you're thinking as you're thinking it and observe how the brain acts when people are lying versus when they're not lying. But I've seen some write-ups on some of this. Right. Some, you're, you're hiding stuff, bro. You know things. Can you tell, Jamie? some pretty sophisticated stuff I can tell. We both, you start laughing, too. Come on. So, uh, you're deep in the government. You know. Uh, I hope so. I hope they do have something like that. But would that? how would that do with false memories, though? Because like, right. they can plant memories into mm-hmm. people's heads. That's right. So they might see the brain reacting as though it were either lying or telling the truth, but you'd have to probably be further down the path than we are today to know whether that could be a recalled memory. Right. Um, you know, whether that's all you're observing, maybe an implanted memory. Yeah. Memory's just so shaky. And when, yeah. when it comes to something that's so extraordinary, like seeing a UFO, I mean, I've never seen a flying saucer or an alien, but I could imagine if I did, I would probably be so overcome with fear and excitement and emotions and all I, your your brain is short-circuited i can only imagine trying to decipher that and then if i had to sit here and explain it to you and be completely honest about my experience boy i don't know if i could you know i don't know yeah. what i would get out of that how much juice i would squeeze out of that i uh, i've never seen a ufo myself uh the closest thing i've had to something that might be that shocking and and terrifying was being charged by a grizzly bear. Oh, And shit. I went into a, you know, sort of a dissociated state, I think. You know, everything kind of slows down and uh, you're sort of thinking in the back, is this really happening or am I in a dream? And, um, you know, your mind goes to a different place when that happens, right? And all the adrenaline turns on and, you know, your body automatically does a whole bunch of things to protect you. And um, I, I would imagine that happens to these people when they when they see something. What like happened that to close you? Up. We were hiking in Wyoming, my wife and I, and she was ahead of me on the trail. And uh, all of a sudden, and I was trying to make noise once in a while, and I was hiking with the bear spray in my hand because I was taking that threat very seriously. And all of a sudden, there was just 
spine-tingling roar. I mean, I'm coming to kill you right now. You are so fucking dead. Oh, I mean, it was, no. It was, I've never heard anything like it. I wish, I wish we had it on a recording somewhere because it's not like what I've ever seen in a video or heard anywhere else. It was the, the epitome of ferocity, you know? And so this thing starts charging up at us. We're up on a, on a trail, on a hiking trail. And I just slip off the safety and start getting as much spray out there as I can. And it comes up on the trail and stops and looks at us. And he puts his head down and like he's gauging us. And I'm just standing there putting the spray out with the sensitivity they have. I'm sure he was, you know, getting that. Um, although he was about 30 feet away kind of at that point about the 30 limit. 30 feet away. Yeah. Yeah, he was right there. He was. Oh, my God. I think if it had been a female bear with cubs, I'm not sure that would have worked. But in this case, after after seeing that we weren't attacking him, I guess, but, you know, when you surprise a grizzly, they have this adrenaline gate that opens and they're full on. They just go nuclear immediately, not like a black bear. Right. And um, that's what happened here. And um, but after there was enough time lapse, I think, between the startle and when he got up on the trail and was getting the pepper spray and saw us that he then walked, turned around and went up the trail the other way. But um yeah, your mind your mind does unusual things when you get in circumstances like that. What did your mind do? Well, like I said, it was kind of a dissociated state, I think. I I felt almost uh like I was in a dream state. And part of me was questioning, you know, is this a dream? Because this was kind of a nightmare situation. It's like the ultimate worst thing I never want to have happen. My wife and I get chewed up by a grizzly bear and so I was <clears throat> thinking, you know, is this like almost pinching myself literally, you know, because I was questioning, could this really be happening? And uh, yet you're on autopilot and you're just kind of doing what you need to do. So in this case, it was getting the pepper spray up, taking the safety off and just putting as much of that between us and the bear as I could and, and not running. I think years later, I was talking to a, a, a game guy in Africa and he said, uh, I told him my story. He had a lot of better stories than, I, than mine. But he said, well, you know, mate, why you lived? And I said, no, why? And he said, because you didn't run. And mm. uh, for whatever reason, we uh, followed the training and just held our ground. Whoo! Yeah, calm was, under pressure, sir. That, Good job. Well, like I said, it was dissociated state. I don't know if it was so much calmed as scared into, uh, you know, doing the right thing. Well, the fact that you were able to get the safety off and then pump the spray out there. That's that's calm. A lot of people just freeze up in those encounters, don't they? Probably. I don't know that much about it. I think the mistake some people make is they have it in their backpack. Oh, it was like with all their gear. Yeah. And they're like, oh, where did I put that thing? You know, and it's a little bit too late to be rummaging around through your backpack at that point. I have uh, some friends that were in Alaska, and they got charged by a bear. They had killed an elk, and they were packing the elk out, and then they went back to get it, uh, the rest of it in the morning because it's a long hike to their camp and a bear had claimed it. And uh, they didn't realize that the bear had claimed it until it was too late and then it came charging out an enormous black bear. You know, the, the black bears in Alaska, are, or excuse me, not brown bear, brown bear in Alaska. Yeah. They're so big because they, they get so much protein. They get so much fish and they're, yep. it's, so it's a, kind of 11 foot bear yeah. just charging them and knocked them over. One of the guys, uh, one of their friends, uh, actually wound up on top of the bear's back Whoa. as it was running down the hill for a brief amount of time. So for a second or so, it was actually literally riding this bear's back. 
And these yeah. guys all got out of it okay? They all got out of it alive. The thing ran it's, off and it huffed. It didn't. I don't think it understood how many people were there. It was, it was a large crew filming a television show. And so as it ran off, uh, it went into the woods for a second. And then it was barking at them from the woods. They all had guns, but they didn't have the guns ready. Uh, they were eating lunch at the time. When I'm they surprised charged. they didn't have their guns ready because I've been hunting up there. Uh, for caribou and mountain goat and other things. And when you do have one of those kills, when you go back to it, it everybody knows that bears like to move in on those and, and you know, they'll just sleep next to it, just keep, mm-hmm. wake up, roll over and start munching again. They even found bear shit as they were walking back. They found a <laughs> pile of bear shit near the carcass. Yeah. yeah. Some people hunt bears by doing that. They'll go to a carcass or shoot mm-hmm. something, leave it out there, and they just keep visiting the carcass. Yep. So I, I'm surprised they, they were caught off guard that way, but thank goodness everybody came out. A famous wildlife photographer was actually killed very recently in Montana. See if you can find this, Jamie, because this guy has an amazing Instagram page. Um, and on his last post, which was just a few days before he was killed, he had a really cool photo of a grizzly bear. And he said he managed to get, because he, he had apparently been fly fishing and, uh, he uh, managed to get that close to the bear because he had smelled like he'd been catching trout all day. So the bear actually got close to him. And apparently what had happened was he inadvertently stumbled upon a bear that had killed a moose. And the bear was protecting the moose. And uh, I guess he was just trying to get a photograph of it or something. The bear mauled him and just tore him apart. And uh, I think he died on the way to the hospital. I think he had a stroke. It, it's uh, it's these these grizzly bears are terrifying. They're totally unlike our black bears in the east. Yeah, our black bears are slow to anger, slow to move. They're relatively gentle. And out west, the grizzly bears eat the black bears. You know, yeah. they'll treat a black bear and and take him down. Yeah, uh, they are absolutely terrifying. If, if you're in that kind of situation. I mean, they're so powerful, so fast, uh, faster than a horse in a sprint, as you probably know. Which is bananas. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is why I had the pepper spray in my hand. Yeah. Because I, you know, was so concerned about that possibility. As unlikely as it seemed, I was terrified of that. It's almost like worth carrying a large rifle. Yeah. Even if you're hunting. If I ever went back to to grizzly country, it wouldn't be with just, just pepper spray. Yeah, like a semi-auto 300 wind something. bag or something, something heavy. But what if the wind had been blowing the wrong way? Right, exactly. Well, my friend John, John Rivet, he uh, actually runs a hunting camp in Alberta, and uh, he's blown pepper spray from a tree stand at uh, a grizzly bear, and he said the bear just walked right through it like it was nothing because he was angry. You know, this is funny because some of the pepper spray – a little bit of it got on me and, and more got on my wife because she was be- just in front of me between me and the bear. And it took like 60 seconds before you started to feel there was a lag after you got the pepper spray on you between when it started to burn and then it would get more intense. Oh, so, that's not good. <laughs> yeah, that's not what you want. <laughs> so I think if that's doing that to me and I don't have fur and I'm not a grizzly, you know, yeah. what's it doing to him? But um, yeah, that's a little concerning too. Did you find the wildlife photographer, Montana? Uh, I found the story, I cannot find his Instagram page. Uh, what's his name? Carl Mock. And you can't find Carl Mock, wildlife photographer, Instagram? Nope. Well, there's that, there's that horrifying story of the the bear whisperer guy oh, yeah. who got killed eat with his girlfriend, and he had his audio running, his uh-huh. tape recorder running, while the bear killed him uh-huh. and ate him. Yeah. And, and then killed his girlfriend. Yeah. I mean, that's oh uh, Werner Herzog's documentary. 
Grizzly Man. Have you watched the documentary? I haven't watched it, and uh, you should. Eesh. You'll have a different opinion once you watch the documentary. You're like, huh? Like it kind of seems like suicide by bear. Yeah, but he was doing crazy stuff. It wasn't just crazy. He was doing what you're never supposed to do. He he was also there past the time when the bears are supposed to be hibernating. So the only bears that are outside of hibernation are really desperate for protein, desperate for fat. They, 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 they'll eat anything and they decided, I think I can eat this dude. Mm. And you know, and he was annoying. He would get like close to the bear. Hey, Mr. Chocolate. Like, and then <laughs> like, God. it's, it's, it's the, the video is the, the, the film rather is hilarious. Unfortunately, it's one of the most unintentionally funny movies you'll ever see. Like, cause the guy, First of all, um, the man really loved bears. There's no doubt about that and had a, a deep respect for them and all, all those things are true. But also he's like a comical kind of a guy. Like uh, like he would like go up to their poop and go, this was just inside of her. Oh my goodness. It's still warm. This is amazing. I love you. I love you. And the bears, like they're just trying to live. They don't give yeah. a fuck about you. Like they don't love you back. Like they have these dead eyes, these shark eyes. You know, and you've looked at just reacting to stuff. Yeah. yeah, you know they yeah. they are predators. And they they're, are they're wild, kind of dangerous animal. wild animals. They are not your friend. They are not your buddy. I no. don't care who you are. You know, it's um, cool that they're around. I mean, it really is. It's an amazing thing. Grizzly bears are amazing. Any bear, they're amazing. But you know, be careful. Like, absolutely right. I mean, there's a lot of horrifying stories and every year this happens to people I mean, it's not oh, yeah. an occasional thing and it's you know 10 or 15 or 20 people every year yeah a couple weeks ago uh a guy got chewed up in yellowstone a guy got his head chewed up by uh, a sow and i think that guy lived fortunately but he got mangled you know it's just they're so fast and so powerful my friend john saw one kill a moose through a scope he was looking wow. through a, a and he saw this bear chase the moose and swat it on the back and he said it literally broke the moose's back i, I can believe that can uh, imagine, just imagine that I, i've seen um video of a female grizzly whose cub got swept away in the current and washed down in front of a big male who was fishing for salmon and the male swiped at the cub, and sometimes the, the males will kill the cubs and eat them. Yeah. And the the mother went after him, and it, it was much like what we experienced uh, when we were hiking. You know, it was just nuclear. She was all out. He was bigger than her. She didn't care. She attacked him with everything she had, drove him across the stream, chased him up a hill, <sighs> and, you know, it happened just like that. God, and uh, life. Yeah. It's, it's overpowering, is... you know. There's uh, when you when you're in that circumstance, um, yeah, you better have a way out or a gun or something. It was just, I think, human beings have such a distorted idea of our place in the food chain. I really do, because we're so, you know, we live in houses and we drive in cars and we fly in planes and we have guns and, you know, and we can go to the zoo and see a bear. But when you're out in the woods and there's no rules and they're acting on the laws of nature, I just don't think most people have any idea what that life is like. Their life is just ruthless and short. It lasts for like, you know, if they're lucky, they get 14, 15 yep. years out of it. And by the time they're dead, they're just all their bones are fucked up and their face is torn apart by other bears. And, you know, and they kill things with their face for a living. That's what they do. Uh, and that's one of the things that, 
terrifies people about this UAP issue that, right, we're top of the food chain. We're the alpha. We don't have to worry about that. We're in control of, yeah. of our fate. And then, like, oh, my gosh, well, maybe we're not. Why did they change it from UFO to unidentified aerial phenomena? The stigma, trying to get away <laughs> from that loaded term. And, you know, part of the term, the problem with that term is that people don't hear the unidentified part. They think automatically you mean alien spaceship. Right. They say, do you believe in UFOs? Well, yeah, I believe people see things they don't identify, they can't identify. But that's not what people are thinking. They're, you know, that's not what they think they're asking you. So people wanted a term that was a little more neutral. Is the worst case scenario that they are beings from another planet or another dimension? Or is the worst case scenario that these are things that China has developed or hmm. Russia has developed and they're so far technically superior to us that we, we can't even imagine? That's interesting because both situations in a worst case could lead to a similar outcome. Yeah. The Chinese are employing AI and information technology in a truly Orwellian fashion. They are creating a state in which they can monitor what virtually every conversation, people's movement, people's uh, employment, their location, they've got facial recognition detectors, they've got every cell phone has got a, like a patriotic scorecard on it, which they can download at a, at a check, checkpoint. And as they continue to perfect that and implement that, you, you get a vision of that seems very alien of where you extrapolate that out 20 years. You've got absolute power and control at the top, like a dysfunctional Hollywood sci-fi movie. So it's conceivably almost as bad as the worst case scenario of, of aliens coming in. Um, I don't know what should be worse. When you think about space and this infinite ocean and the shores it washes up on and the things that are in the shadows out there, you know, there's no end to, to where, where your imagination can go. Um, so it's hard to, hard to compare. But uh, I don't think either of those would necessarily be a happy, happy scenario. Well, I would think that best case scenario would be aliens because we would hope that aliens would be more enlightened than us. We know Chinese are not. They're just humans. You know, we, we know that Chinese people are no different than the Russians or than the Chechnyans or the United States people. They're just human beings. Right. Human beings are incredibly flawed and we're territorial apes with thermonuclear weapons. Right. That's what we are. We would hope that these things from another planet are far more advanced than us technologically and hopefully far more advanced than us spiritually, the way they communicate. Maybe they're not warlike at all, which is why there's been no stories about them attacking and killing people or, you know, blowing up bases or doing anything crazy when they've been chased by jets. They, they seem to be completely benign in that mm -hmm. respect. Yep. So I think the best case scenario would, at this stage, would be that they're aliens. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And I, I think uh, that would be the hope. And furthermore, that they would impart a lot of this information to us and technology in ways Would they that, though? I don't know. But, that, I don't think but they in terms would. of best case scenario would be that they are benign like that and they want to help us. Yeah. And um, so that's... You know, that's what we'd all like to believe. The help us part, maybe, but show us the technology, but we're still us. The problem is we're still us. We're still ridiculous. We're, the human animal in just, in general, amazing, 
beautiful, incredible creations, wonderful creativity, but also frightening in our anger and our ability to lash out and attack. I would hope that these beings that can travel across the galaxy would be far past all that stuff. That's best case scenario. Because if it is Russia or if it is China, you know, they're going to be like, we, we look, I'm a proud American, and I would like to think that the way we behave and the way we uh, have governed in terms of uh, the way we've used our superpower, although not perfect, has been better than if it was communist China that was in the same, there was a CCP that was in the same position. I would think that we've done a far better job. I, th I would think that we... We're, we're certainly not as draconian in the way we treat our, our citizens. We certainly don't do things to our citizens in this current age the way they did to the Uyghur Muslims. There's a lot of things that I like about the United States. But if the United States had the kind of power where they could just travel through the galaxy and they could just show up outside of nuclear bases in China and do whatever the fuck they wanted and just disappear into the ocean and we were the only ones that had it, that would disturb the shit out of the rest of the world. Right. Yeah. Even though we are the preeminent superpower, we, even though we are, you know, we're, we're the number one military power on Earth right now, currently for, for the time being. Right. I wouldn't want us to have that kind of advantage over the rest of the world. But if anybody did, I'd want it to be us. But I definitely don't want it to be China. Yeah, right. Absolutely not. And that would be the worst. That'd be worst case. Yeah, scenario. We, we monitor the Chinese and Russians very closely, very carefully. We spend. I think the unclassified figure is about $70 billion per year on the intelligence program, intelligence community. And it would be very surprising and it's stunning if they had independently developed technology that, that was that uh, far ahead of, of everything else and everyone else, uh, somehow, secretly. So um, it doesn't seem likely, and uh, we don't think that's the case. So more likely... Ultra-terrestrial or extraterrestrial. Um, this is the conundrum. It, it, we don't see any evidence that it's the Russians or Chinese or anyone else, and we don't have any reason to believe that they have technology that, that can perform in that manner. So, you know, that's this is the problem. Where, where, do you, where does that drive you? Right. Where does that drive you? Um, what about the possibility of the things that Bob Lazar did talk about, whether you believe Bob Lazar or not? The thing Bob, Bob Lazar talked about that's fascinating was this possibility that we have obtained some extraterrestrial craft and that we are in the process of trying to back engineer it. Yeah, that's a <clears throat> that's a really ticklish question for me and awkward. Uh, you know, if I were to say, yep, it's true, nobody would believe me. Um, if I really knew, I couldn't say yes. And um, uh, and yet, so it's it's hard to to give good answers to that question. I think it's plausible. I don't, I don't say that, think that people should uh, roll that out. It's a legitimate question to ask. There's enough um, information to suggest something like that may have happened. We may have recovered some debris, so. What information? Um, well, for, there's some books about Roswell. There's, there's some other cases like that where people have come forward and said, I was in the military and I was at this you know, retrieval. I was a kid, and I saw this thing crash, and I ran up to it, and I saw what was inside it, and blah blah blah. And um, there are some, uh, in fact, there's some investigation going on right now on on uh, a new case. So, 
it, it's not an off-the-wall question. It's, it's a legitimate question. I think the way it would probably play out in our government is that it would be so deeply squirreled away that um, you wouldn't be able to bring in the best scientists. You wouldn't be able to bring in world-class scientists. You would have available maybe a few people inside some aerospace company, and they'd probably be very hamstrung in their ability uh, to to test and examine the material and so forth, and you know, it'd just be locked away somewhere. That's the argument for Bob Lazar, because Bob Lazar, at least on paper, is not a top scientist. He was a guy that had not the best credentials in terms of his education, but was clearly a very intelligent guy who was fascinated with propulsion systems, put a jet engine in the back of his car, mm -hmm. and he was kind of a wacky super genius dude. He was just a little off. And when you think about his description of how they ran the program, it's even more in line with what you would do with something that was incredibly top secret, whereas everything's compartmentalized. The metallurgy people didn't talk to the propulsion people. The propulsion people didn't talk to the whoever else was on the project. I, I'm not saying that um, there's no reason to believe we might have some recovered debris. I'm skeptical about a some craft. of his claims. Yeah. In particular. Multiple full crafts, right? Yeah. Didn't he say there's and, like nine of them? Yeah, and, and different models and things. Some of the things he say don't, don't sound like the government that I know. Like he, what? He, like 21 levels of, you know, I had 21 levels of security clearance above top secret or something. There's no security system like that that, that I've ever heard of. Um, so there are things like that that don't make sense from somebody who's been an insider. Mm -hmm. But um, is it possible that there might be something like that when it gets to a program that's as bizarre as back engineering extraterrestrial vehicles that they might put in place additional levels of tox top secret clearance? Conceivable. There, there especially a, when you're talking about compartmentalizing all these different aspects of the project. That's not really the way it works. The way it works is that uh, it, you know, they could make a special exception in this case. And DOE has something sort of like this. They have a alphabetical system with tiers of, of more classified stuff. DOE is Department of Energy. Okay. So, you know, in the classified world, you've got the intelligence community, and it has its own procedures and so forth. Then you've got Defense Department black programs, which are a different world. And there's a little bit of overlap in a Venn diagram sense. And then you've got Department of Energy, which has billions of dollars in black programs, tens of billions, and very little oversight. So <clears throat> they, have a, they have a system and a different clearance, which is a result of the Atomic Energy Act, not an executive order, which establishes the classification for the rest of the government. So uh, something like that's not impossible. It could happen. Now... The Roswell story is a fascinating one because there was an uptick in UFO sightings or at least reported sightings that came after World War II. And the idea is, amongst you know the UFO cognoscenti, is that they were aware that we had detonated nuclear weapons and that we had blown up Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And they're like, okay, these crazy fucks are they're taking this to a new place. Let's uh, let's zoom in and uh, see what's going on down there. And then they started visiting us. Yeah, I mean that's that's the story. Um, that's plausible to me. I mean, if there are aliens here, why are they here? What are they doing, right? And when you look at the behavior of the objects that we're seeing, it's consistent with 
the possibility that maybe somebody has an interest in something here they want to protect. And if we were to have a nuclear war, it might compromise that interest. So maybe they have a stake in some resource here or some capability or genetics or just whatever. Maybe it's an experiment and a Petri dish somebody started a long time ago. They want their experiment to run to its conclusion. I mean, That's an interesting perspective. There's there's so many possibilities when you start going down that path. I I think um, probes that are, you know, artificial intelligence probes that have the, the capability perhaps to manufacture or print robots or beings or maybe even genetically create something when it arrives at a destination is conceivable, right? They could travel through space for hundreds of years or thousands of years, arrive at a destination, consuming very little energy the whole way, all of a sudden, boom, and they create on board some some beings that can can operate things and perform tasks that are short live for that purpose, monitor, interact, collect, report. There's all kinds of, uh, of possibilities that are within the bounds of, of science. Um, yeah, the imagination runs wild, right? It does, yeah. And when you think about what's happening currently with human civilization, if you take it from the advent of the nuclear bomb to where we are today with this weird situation with Russia and China and the... And just even almost like a civil war, which is potential, potentially possible in the United States as well. Like we're in this weird volatile stage of our development as a civilization. Maybe that's a feature of evolution. Maybe when biological creatures go from being a thing that lives tooth and claw like a grizzly bear to eventually developing shelter and then eventually developing some semblance of civilization to eventually developing advanced civilization and space travel and all this other stuff. Maybe along the way, there's this real possibility of fucking the whole project up and that it happens all throughout the universe, and maybe they've observed this. Maybe this is a stage of development that we are being given training wheels and maybe a little bit of a helping hand by our extraterrestrial brethren who are, okay, they're there. They're right there. They're at that nuclear part. Let's uh, let's keep an eye on these fuckers. That would be a nice benign view. I'd, I'd love that. And it's possible that even by acknowledging this phenomenon, if we got to the point at some down the road where our government said, wow, this there really is something from off-planet coming here, it might uh, help to resolve some of these differences and disputes between different countries, uh, might compel us to collaborate more, to see ourselves more as, as one species, one people, and not you know, Chinese versus Russians versus Americans. It would certainly stimulate a lot of um, uh, technology, much as the, um, uh, the space program did after they uh, saw the Sputnik, and people got afraid of the Russians in space, and they're ahead of us, and it actually led to cooperation. It led to, to progress in technology, a lot of good things. So I think there's a possibility that, that this could go in a very positive direction. That's, that's what I would like to think. Now, Roswell as a case is really interesting, right? Because there's a lot of witnesses. There's a lot of people that claim to have seen things. And the stories all kind of mesh together from Jesse Marcel to all the, the different people that claim to have seen bodies and different people that saw caskets to the person who worked at the mortuary who was 
co- the contacted the funeral home that was contacted by the uh, the military and told to make small caskets. There was all this weird shit that goes together. Now, whenever you have a story like that that becomes a legend, for sure there's some fuckery involved, right? There's there's got to be some. Well, we know the Air Force lied initially, and they've now admitted they lied. So, you know, there was... Let's explain that. Chicanery. So, uh, Congressman Schiff of Arizona uh, took up the, the case um, decades after the fact and asked the General Accounting Office to investigate. And they confronted the Air Force and did a lot of research, and the Air Force story that these were weather balloons crumbled. And the Air Force did a, a deep... Uh, inquiry of its own and produced a big book saying i forget what the title was but essentially they were saying it was actually a classified experiment that was designed to detect nuclear explosions in the soviet union so they admitted that their first story was a lie and their news story was well it really was balloons but they weren't weather balloons they were part of a top secret experiment right so they've changed their story once and you know is that now the the true story or is it actually you know something else right and why would they change their story like what is why why did they change it why tell the public like what benefit could be gained from telling the public that the initial 1947 story was a lie well i think they were trying to explain some of the discrepancies and hopefully this would put it to bed um maybe it's just the truth um i you know i don't know uh what the motive was behind it um, if you're skeptical, you would say it's a cover story. They're trying to cover their tracks. That's where I'm at. I'm skeptical. Yeah, I don't blame <laughs> you. I mean, we know they lied about it the first time. Well, the first, the report, I don't know where the report came from, but it was reported in the Roswell Dilly record, right? That they had recovered a, a crashed flying mm-hmm. saucer. Oh, it was actually reported more widely than that. I think it was like announced over the radio and across the country. And then the next day they said it was a weather balloon. Right. And that's where it was it was it was that when Jesse Marcel says he was told to bring in this false debris and say that this aluminum foil and all this crap was from a weather balloon. That's right. And uh, I mean, I will tell you, I've I've never said this before, but I've been told by multiple people who have credentials and access that there is some truth to these stories. Um, so, uh, I don't discount this when people say this. I've had people tell me, you know, um, people that have, uh, substantial, you know, scientific or military credentials that they believe is true. So I encourage people on the Hill to pursue it. You know, they've got a, they've got a, they've got a task force going right now, looking into this, trying to understand what's happening in these restricted military areas. If you're opening that up, you know, ask all the tough questions. Ask about the, the military bases and the nuclear weapons. Ask whether there's any anything buried somewhere, whether there's, there's materials that we have. Um, it's been a long time. I think the people can handle it, the public. It's their government. It's their money. Um, I say go for it. You know, let's find out the truth. Get to the bottom line. Where do you think that stuff could be? If they did really oh, recover, oh yeah, well, you know, we have a, a number of candidate places. So you know, there's 18. Area 51, there's Wright Path, there's Edwards, there's yeah. a whole lot of places. Depending on what you were doing with it, if you wanted to just squirrel it away, there's uh, 
Um, so facilities not too far from here in the southwest that are, you know, you dispose of nuclear waste and other things. So there's a lot of possibilities. But wouldn't you, like, who's got the key? And who, you know, and that Good person's question. dead, right? For, so we're, we're talking about several generations. Like, how do you get the golden key? Here we got people from 1947 that were in the military and they were adults. Most likely dead now, right? Yep. Yeah, we're talking yeah. 70 years yeah. later. Not too many World War II vets around. Yeah. So what are the, how does that torch get passed? Like, and do do they trot out new scientists we, occasionally when they've sufficiently compromised them on Epstein's Island? We have an amazingly dense, complex security apparatus. And yeah. um, it really, you know, some people say, oh, you can't keep stuff secret a long time. That's not true at all. We keep lots of stuff secret for decades. And, you know, there are reporters in D.C. that think they've got the inside track and they know most of the secret stuff. People who think that are clueless they, they really have no idea yeah i think um, it's pretty delusional to think the government can't keep secrets like a crashed ufo it's pretty delusional well, the f-117 and the and the the b-2 bomber you know when they rolled the f-117 out it was already operational up at tonopah and it was a, a mission ready unit they were flying and the people were shocked all, all around the world people had no idea so this thing had been built. There were tens of thousands of people involved in the production, the design, the deployment. And, you know, there are many smaller things that would be much easier to conceal for a long time. What gets compromised and leaked is usually like foreign policy stuff. And a policymaker can see that he can use it to his advantage in a debate over, you know, should we bomb around or something? And they'll leak that. But weapons program stuff almost never leaks. Why do you think that is? It doesn't have press value. Um, it's often very technical. There's no advantage. And also, almost nobody knows about it. The policymakers don't know about that stuff. So they will, they're recipients of intelligence products and reporting. But even the when I was in the government, people in the National Security Council and, at that time, the director of Central Intelligence, they didn't have access to the black programs at DOD. There was a case where I had a request from the National Security Council for access to some programs and I took it back to the building and they said no. That's the president's own staff. Mm. If the president wants it, we'll tell him or maybe the national security advisor or something, but Which was this Bush or Obama? Uh this was Clinton, I believe. Oh. Because I'm thinking the staffer was a guy named Richard Clark, famous uh counter terrorist advisor on the NSC staff who was carried over so at that point possibly it was bush and clinton was trying to find out some information about ufos correct like there was I, i've heard publicly that, he he talked about it on a talk show i believe yes he, he has said that i have no inside knowledge of of what he has done or who he's asked but i've heard that he did uh ask one of his confidants to dive into this yeah i wonder how much they tell the president because like you think, well, the president has access to all the information, and then you look at Trump, and you go, maybe not. They, maybe they, they, don't, they, maybe they, don't. they don't have access to anything close to all the information, and they don't need it, and they don't want it. You know, most of the secret stuff is not sexy or interesting or particularly, you know, Isn't that a flaw, though, in our system? I mean, if that's really legitimately the commander-in-chief. 
That's the commander-in-chief of the greatest army the world's ever known, but you can't know a lot of shit. It's not that he can't, and he can get briefed anything he wants, but he would spend the first... He could spend the first six months doing nothing but looking at secret programs and getting briefed on them. Mm. And it's just not worth his time to be getting briefed on, yeah, this is how we made the battle armor on the tank. But let me ask you this. If you were the president, wouldn't that be the first thing you would ask? There is some stuff that I would immediately... What would you do? Yeah, I would... uh, Oh, good question. So I'd want to get... I want to know the Department of Energy. I'd want to know... All their special programs is one thing. I'd want to have a sit down with the director of operations at CIA. I'd want to talk to, I'd want to review the waived special access programs, section 119 of Title 10, that most of Congress is exempted from reporting to. It's a very high category of, of DOD programs. Um, there's some things like that. There's a briefing the president gets, of course, shortly after being elected that covers a lot of the you know, strategic nuclear warfare, some some of the key top secret things that he really needs to know, has to know, should know. Um, and then, you know, there's a category of things that are like, should we tell them or not? <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, there's, there's too much stuff, obviously, to convey, so they've got to pick and choose. Some things are no-brainers. Other things are judgment calls. What do you think the DOE could be working on? Uh, well, I you know, in some cases... A lot of it, what they're doing is good stuff. They're trying to secure the weapon stockpile, and they're trying to, to make sure that now that we're not testing anymore, will these things still function as they were designed? And they can do incredible computer modeling and that kind of thing. But, you know, DOE's got its hands in a lot of different areas in terms of uh, power and production and other kinds of things. And I'd be uh, very interested to know uh, they don't seem to get much oversight, unlike the Defense Department and the intelligence community. They have... A lot of oversight from Capitol Hill, for example. Uh, DOE, I don't think, dis- necessarily discloses its black programs to its oversight committee, the, the Energy and Public Works Committee. I don't, I don't know how that works over there. I'm not sure they get the same. I don't think they get the same level of review. How are they incentivized to innovate? Well, they've got a, you know, being in, you know, as they operate kind of in secrecy. Yeah, a lot of what they do is not not all the R&D is in secret. They're doing a lot of uh, good stuff related to energy and power and solar power and stuff that's public, open source. Um, it's really mostly nuclear weapons related stuff that is secret, that is really, really close hold. But that can cover a lot of grounds. There's been a lot of innovation. That's an example where, no, the public doesn't know, shouldn't know. We wouldn't want that information to be released, a lot of the details of that. It wouldn't be in our interest, the public's interest. Um, And there's a lot of stuff going on there. And it was, for me, the one sort of pie that I didn't have a lot of deep access to. I had some access to those programs, but I had a a much more prolonged and uh, uh, intimate relationship with the defense and intelligence community. Now, if you became president and you wanted to find out more information about UAPs or UFOs or whatever you want to call them. How would you go about doing that? Yeah, that's an interesting question too. Because, Where would you start? Yeah, because they, it's so convoluted. These things. Um, I would start at the agency, and uh, and the Air Force. That's where you're most likely to to find these find these things. If if, if there's a program like that, uh, that's most likely where it is. 
And how would you even get to the right person? Because the number of people that have all the information has to be pretty small. Yeah, so you'd have to be absolutely. real careful about who you have lunch with. Yeah. Um, when you worked in the field a long time, you get some ideas of where to go and who you to talk to. You think you got to. an idea who to go and yeah, who to talk to? Yeah, I have some ideas. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I know where a lot of the budgets and around offices. What? Imagine walking around with that information, though. Imagine being a guy yeah. who's walking around knowing that somewhere in the middle of the Nevada desert, there's a UFO that definitely came from another planet. It's being guarded 24-7, and if the public saw it, it would shatter their belief in reality. Yeah, crazy. I, I'll tell you a story that uh, you can judge how it compares, but this is something that happened to me in real life that was crazy. So I was one of a handful of people who was told there's a nuclear weapon in New York. It's going to go off in the next few days, we think, and there's another unlocated. We think it's heading to D.C., which is where I was living with my family. So I'm walking around for days, you know, running to people in the street, my neighbors, how you doing? You know, get the hell out of here. And you're not supposed, you can't tell, any, tell anybody anything. I, I had my family quietly, you know, relocate, but um, turned out the source, thankfully, was wrong, but it was one of those kind of situations where you're aware of something or the possibility of something that is going to just freak people the hell out if, if they found out about it and for good reason. It was a very uh, surreal experience. Jesus. Yeah, that's that always begs the question, like, if you knew that something was going to happen that was going to destroy the country, what do you do? You can't even tell anybody. Like, what's the point? Like, if an asteroid's coming here and it's going to land smack down the middle of Chicago. Well, see, that was an interesting case there right because they didn't warn new yorkers to evacuate why didn't they do that because so, they didn't I, want panic i think they made a decision that the panic would be awful and there'd be casualties and they didn't have certainty that it was there but that would be a terrible policy decision to have to make yeah you know do we tell people to evacuate or not if you tell people to evacuate it's probably going to be incredible panic and all kinds of not just disruption but people are going to get hurt and probably some people are going to die um, in a panic like that. What do you do if a UFO's coming? Like, what do you do if they spotted something, they've got some sort of satellite image of some mothership that's 15 football fields long that it's headed our way? Do you even bother telling anybody? Do you let it just show up? There's no protocol for that that I know of. I, I would think you would want to try to establish communications. I, I think if we actually got to the point of saying, yeah, we're monitoring these things now. We're seeing where they're coming into orbit. We're seeing where they're dropping down from orbit. And we're seeing this pattern. These are ships. They are craft. They're vehicles. They're intelligently controlled. What do you do about it? One of the things you might want to do is try to establish some kind of communication. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you're aware of uh, the astronomy professor from Harvard, the ch chief of astronomy. Dr. Loeb. Dr. Yeah. Avi Loeb. And sure. his uh, assessment of that object that went through our solar system, that he believes it's extraterrestrial in origin, that it's 91% a disk, 91% possibility that it's some sort of a disk, that it's 10 times more reflective than any other uh, object like it that we've ever spotted in the solar system, and that it's moving far too fast away from the sun for it to be something that is, it's, that it's not affected the way we would expect it to be by the sun's gravity. It seems to indicate that it's uh, something of extraterrestrial origin. What'd you think of that? It's interesting. I have read 
that since then a an alternative has been identified that that many scientists think clears this up, that explains those anomalies, and he identified a number of anomalies. Um, one of the things I found interesting, though, about it is here's an object, um, maybe discarded, maybe it's just an artifact, a solar sail that somebody didn't need anymore, and it <clears throat> fell into an orbit around our sun. But if it was a uh, some kind of a craft, as some people theorized, um, think about how inefficient that is compared to a probe in our atmosphere compared to these things that we're seeing routinely um, this thing passed you know it may have taken hundreds or thousands of years to get here and would you want to design and build something that after traveling for hundreds of thousands of years it spends a few days at, at a great distance from interesting planets and just kind of whizzes by and then it's gone well isn't it possible that this is one like look at what we're doing on mars right we have this drone that's buzzing around on Mars and this, the rover. Isn't it possible that this is like an early stage intergalactic sure. spaceship that's now just filled with skeletons? It, it's possible. Uh, what, I, what I think is interesting, though, is we have this uh, very uh, persuasive and compelling evidence of intelligently controlled vehicles in our atmosphere yeah. that are actually maneuvering, which this thing was not, and are behaving in ways that you might expect uh, a probe from somewhere else to, to behave, including the fact that it's doing radical things we don't understand that seem like magic. So if you apply that logic to, say, the Nimitz case, I think it's even stronger. I think mm. it's harder to explain the Nimitz case than it is Umanamana. Yeah, Umanamana, though, what my take on it is like, you know, you could go to someone's barn and find a, a Model T, or you could drive down the road and see a Tesla. You know, there are various stages of technological evolution. It, just because we have these amazing things like that Tic Tac that are somehow or another here and operating, it doesn't mean that something else. I mean, if, the, if we're right about the amount of Goldilocks planets that are out there, and we're right about the infinite scope of the universe— it's it's possible there's a shitload of civilizations. We can't compare their technology. It's almost like comparing the technology of human beings on the same planet to people that live on like North Sentinel Island, right? The the, the people that are uh, isolated, the uh, small band of uh, human beings that uh, live in this uncontacted tribe. If we go, oh to, yeah, on the Andaman Sea, yeah. So <laughs> uh, compare them to people who live in you know Los Angeles. It's kind of silly, right? It, he makes a compelling case for that. Um, it, it is a, it is bizarre that it, the shape of it and yeah. the luminosity and so forth. NASA has now, and Congress has agreed that they should begin looking for things like that, techno signatures, mm. evidence of alien technology. And this is another one of these ironies that that NASA has said and Congress said, yeah, that's entirely possible. You should go look at that stuff. But oh my God, if it's in our atmosphere, if it's if it's that close, no, that's crazy. Right. Even though it's happening, you know, right. our military is encountering these things and we're getting movies of them and radar tracks. Um, you, you can't. It's very difficult to get anybody to take that seriously and to get interested and get involved. Even when they look at video like there's yeah. there's a weird video. I don't even know if it's legit, but it's a weird video of a, a thing in our upper atmosphere. It's it's moving and then it takes a very hard angle turn away. Have you seen that thing before? I'm not sure which one. There's so many out there. Yeah. And, and that's a common uh, kind of occurrence, these right angle turns, you know. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like it's almost 
impossible with our it's impossible like there's nothing we have that can move like that no way and you would have Not to, at high speed yeah you'd have to imagine it's either faked like some faked footage that shows these things because for sure there's a lot of fake stuff you know there was that one guy uh from was it denmark where was that guy one there was one guy from another country that made a lot of fake ufo footage oh probably the swiss yes guy yeah 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 yeah, yeah. he's kind of hilarious yeah, and there's a number of these fabricators, and of course they've polluted the whole space. Yeah, I know some guys that are trying to create an AI capability that'll screen all these videos for signs of manipulation and being hoaxed, et cetera, so you can have a a better sense of confidence in the ones that get through that process. Yeah, because there's so many out there, and some of them could be really interesting, but you have no way, no way of knowing what credibility to attach to them generally. Uh, are there any ones from other countries that you find credible, like videos, footage? Like, was there, um, wasn't there some uh, images or video that was taken over Mexico City? Wasn't there something? There is an interesting one from the Mexican military. Um, don't know much detail about that. I've, I've seen it. There have been a lot of sightings in Mexico and in South America. Uh, there was a, a sighting off the coast of Chile, which I think uh, they found an explanation for. Um, it was a apparently a drug plane that was exuding a lot of uh, uh, of its fuel, probably because it was uh, trying to disguise its location or I don't know change directions or something. It looked very weird when you saw the, the original video. I think that was uh, explained. Uh, the Brazilians have tons of video. Um, I haven't seen much of it. I know that they've collected a great deal of information. They've had some incidents like we did in 52 where the capital capital of the U.S. was being overflown. Um, they called it the night of the UFOs, and they had like 23 different UFOs being seen and multiple fighter jets in the air. And, you know, this was going on all over the country, front page news. So um, th there is some other video evidence out there for sure. There's some video that we haven't released that we have uh, that I've seen. What have you seen? Uh, one of them... I've seen a few of them, and, and until the Defense Department releases it, I, I can't say too much about it, uh, even though it's, it's not classified, but um, they haven't released it yet. But I will say there are some more videos like the ones that have been released that, ha that they've authenticated. Do you believe that the Defense Department is going to eventually release this video that you've seen? I hope so. I, I don't see why they shouldn't. Uh, they've only National security has only been benefiting from this. Right, this was a problem that was being ignored—a very real problem, a problem that should concern everybody. How many Americans would believe that we've got craft violating our airspace routinely in military airspace? I mean, most of us tend to think that you know we're America, we're we're the alpha, we're the top dog. Our airspace is secure. We got it locked down. No way anybody's going to come sneaking in here. Well, to find out this is going on—not like occasionally, but routinely. Yeah, even around military facilities and bases, that's that's shocking. It's not good. And, and you know, it's hard to get traction though. When that story appeared in the New York Times, uh, I was stunned to learn that almost nobody in Congress asked for a briefing. Really? Yeah. Here's this front page story with videos. You can see the UFO for yourself. You can hear the pilots, and they're clearly uh, amazed at what they're looking at. They have no idea what it is. And you'd think the oversight committees would go, what the hell is going on here? I want a briefing on that. Yeah, Jamie, find the Go Fast video and play that because that's the best one to hear the pilot's reaction. 
because they're watching this thing shoot across the surface of the uh, ocean. And uh, that was released in the Washington Post a few months after the the other two that were in the New York Times. Mm. But it's a good video, and it, it, it's been uh, authenticated by the Defense Department. It looks like a Tic Tac. Yeah, uh, but it's moving at a much more reasonable rate of speed. Much more reasonable. What did they and, estimate the speed at? You know, I've seen different estimates, and uh, there's one debunker who's made a strong case that it's going like 130 miles an hour. Could be right, but he claims it's a balloon. Um, oh, is that Mick West? Yeah. Yeah, Mick West debunks everything. Yeah. That motherfucker has, doesn't believe it, shit. It, it, his, <laughs> his, his debunkings are more elaborate than alien theories. You know, he's mm-hmm. got civilian airliners on their sides yeah. without transponders and restricted yeah. airspace with, you know, three other things happening at the same time. But His take on the Tic Tac is pretty silly. Yeah, he, he doesn't... What, what bothers he hasn't taken into account is, all the evidence. He, he has no regard for military personnel and their experience with these sensors and these aircraft and what they're seeing and reporting. He and the just tracking dis- discounts these people and yeah. he's never been in one of these planes. He's never operated these sensors and he just dismisses these people. And it, that, that bothers me. Yeah. He's an odd duck. Nice guy though. Mm-hmm. Um, you got it? I don't know. Let's see. You don't know? Yeah, that's it. That's not an LNS though, is it? It's not. That's the gimbal. I was trying to find the other one. The go fast <laughs> one, it just, it, did you just Google go fast? 100%. Yeah. Just go maybe fast. It's this, is it all in the same video, maybe? Maybe. Could be. Yep, that's it. That's it. Yep. So that is them trying to figure out what the fuck that is. Yeah, and by the way, just the, imagine this is a segment of a longer video. Yes, I've suggested to my friends, some of my friends on the Hill, that they ask the department to release the rest of the video. Why not? I yeah. mean, you know, it's they, already they, part they've of acknowledged that this is this yeah. is for real, and they've also acknowledged that there was no compromise; it wasn't classified. So why not release the rest of it? And that might help us resolve some of these ambiguities because if that makes a right angle turn. That's not a balloon, obviously. Right. Well, the way that thing's moving, to think that's I, a balloon seems does not look silly. like a, It's like it's on railroad tracks. Yeah. I mean, it's just like... It's flying. Yeah, and, and, and it's really true. It's straight. It's not wobbling yeah, right. or being buffeted by the wind or... No, that would have to be the most fucking insane wind of all time, like a tunnel wind, you know? But the, just the fact that it's it looks like it's not wiggling at all, it's moving yeah. through some method of propulsion that can't be determined because it's not giving off a heat signature, and... I mean, to say it's only 150 miles an hour, like maybe, but why would that freak out pilots who go way faster than that? I mean, they can go supersonic and they're watching this thing and they're freaking out and laughing. Like, look at that thing go. Like, come on. Yeah, they're weirded out by it, obviously. And they're probably being vectored to it by somebody. It sounds to me like they've been looking for it and somebody's been saying, it's, hey, it's down here, you know, go to this place and you'll find it. And then these guys finally get on it and somebody gets a lock on it. Yeah. And you can hear that amazement in their voice. So there's a lot more information about that incident and these others, which isn't in the public domain. I've I've been urging the uh, the Defense Department to put more of that out there and asking, you know, suggesting to the committees they might want to they ask the department to do that. I don't see any reason not to. 
an informed public is in our best interest. It's in our best national security interest. And yet the overwhelming uh, uh, default value in, in the Pentagon is, you know, don't talk about anything, don't share anything. Um, even though they can see in a case like this, until that information got out, nothing was happening. Right? Yeah. And now we've finally getting some attention on a serious national security problem, which wouldn't have happened if the information hadn't gone public. And, you know, why not make more information public if it's not classified? There's no sources and methods issue uh, that you're going to compromise. You know, you're not revealing some super hidden capability um, that needs to be protected. Why not put that out and, and help inform people? And it's their country. It's their their homes, their livelihood, their government. Um, and uh, ultimately, how does Congress make decisions about how to allocate resources if they don't have the information of what's going on and, uh, you know, what the possible threats are? It, this inf- None of this information was getting to Congress. So there was no opportunity for them even to uh, uh, to take any action. They were completely kept in the dark on this until um, 2017. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, what video that you've seen is the most compelling that's been released? And have you seen anything that hasn't been released that's more compelling? One of the ones that hasn't been released is uh, got more emotional impact, certainly. Uh, Can the, you give us a the, tease? The UFO is going really close to this guy, and uh, he's freaking out. Um, for good reason, but um, so that that doesn't mean that the object was necessarily a super advanced craft. You know, he's going so fast. You know, maybe it was actually moving slowly and hanging there, and, and he went by it super fast. But his perception was that something was coming real fast at him and going right between him and another guy. And um, that's all unclassified stuff, but uh, doesn't. This doesn't resolve any of these issues, but it's pretty compelling. So that there's there's that that's there's something like that along those lines. The, the Navy has admitted there was a near midair collision. Safety report was filed. Uh, that's all public information. Uh, and I think you know again, it's frustrating to see this this attitude of you know we've got to lock everything down. We've got to classify everything right away, even if it's a guy with a with an iPhone. Yeah. And, you know, it's not a secret sensor or anything. Uh, you don't have to worry about the source, um, you know, because an informed public, more of the scientific community will get involved. Uh, they'll bring more expertise to bear. Uh, and people have better, better assess this, this issue and whether something needs to be done about it. Because right now, almost nothing is being done about it. They've got a tiny task force with a few guys who are trying to collect information and write a report for the Senate. And I think what's going to be significant about it is it's due next month. They're not going to be able to say what Project Blue Book said, which was there's nothing really happening here. There's nothing of national security interest. There's no advanced technology that's beyond what we have. Uh, Blue Book said both of those things. It said not only not only is it not ET, but we don't see any uh, mysterious technology. And um, we don't see any reason to be concerned from a national security standpoint. I don't see how this report can say uh, any of those things. So I think when that, you know, assuming they do deliver the report and they acknowledge that this is happening, it's continuing to happen, they have other classified information that should be weighed and factored into their unclassified judgment and report that's released, 
they won't give the details, but the people that write the assessment of this will, should have the knowledge of that. And I think if they do a straight up job, they're gonna to have to acknowledge that there is, there are indications of technology more advanced than anything we possess and that um, there is a legitimate national security issue. So that one video that flies very close to the pilot, that's the one that you find to be the most compelling? That has the most, I think, emotional impact on people. I, I think the gimbal video, when you understand that there's a, a second fleet of, of UFOs that are maneuvering near those guys, in addition to what you're seeing there and, and the pilot's reaction and the maneuvering, that's probably the most compelling. Um, the FLIR video that we haven't talked about much does show this instantaneous acceleration, which is another thing that, that we don't have, we can't do. We don't have anything that can sit there hovering and then just suddenly, whoosh, you know. And the FLIR video was the one of the Tic Tac, correct? That was the that Tic Tac, correct. See if we find that. F-L-I-R, correct? Correct. What does that stand for? Forward-looking infrared radar. Okay. Um, and this is, again, this is after Commander Fravor had spotted the thing. Correct. So, so this is it. There's two aviators in those F-18s. There's a, a pilot and a weapon system operator behind him. And there were two F-18s that saw the Nimitz with, with two people in them. So that's four aviators all seeing the same thing in perfect conditions. toggling through different methods of viewing this thing to try to get a better right correct perspective a better view of it yeah and so he this had been is following what was going on earlier in the day and wanted to go out and try to uh get on this thing um you know gung-ho navy pilot and uh all of a sudden it decides it doesn't want to be there anymore so we're, what we're watching for folks who are just listening is he's toggling also from looking at it uh in looks like one X and then he goes and zooms in occasionally he's going back and forth what is he doing here he's trying to get a lock on it uh, and uh, that will that will enhance his ability to track it and uh, he's not able to do that he's his system is not able to get a lock so he keeps trying and then whoop, all of a sudden it just yeah kinda, that's bananas <laughs> just kinda, you know do we have any estimation of how fast it was going when it did we, that we do um, we're talking thousands of miles an hour. Um, the Scientific Coalition for UFO Research has a website, and they did a very uh, deep analysis, mathematical engineering guys, um, on the momentums, the G-forces, the speeds, and they're all crazy. I mean, some of the G-forces, they're G-forces, if the speed estimates are right, that are probably five times greater than anything we've ever built could withstand. I mean, it would just shred any aircraft, any missile, any rocket that we've ever built. They're so far beyond the design tolerances and limits of systems that we make that it's crazy. So that image or that video alone is probably to you the most compelling? Uh, I, I think- Or the most- I think actually the, the, the most compelling case is the Nimitz case because you have so many witnesses and so many sensors, and the FLIR is part of that. Yeah. But you really have to look at the whole case. You have to talk to all the pilots involved, which I've done. Uh, you have to talk to the radar operators on the different, on the, on the Princeton. There's also radar operators on the E2C Hawkeye, which was up there monitoring this, getting sporadic hits. And then you have this third F-18 that goes up. 
and takes that video. So there's a lot of different information from a lot of different sources. And the thing is, it's all perfectly congruent. It all hangs together. Nobody's contradicting anybody else's story. And what people are seeing is what the censors are reporting. So that case overall is really the, the most compelling to my, to my mind. It's just such a strange occurrence when all those pieces align together like that too, right? Where you have the Nimitz, you have Commander Fravor, you have the other ship and all this, all this information about this one thing that they track on this one day and then they say they've encountered multiple ones of those over the last few weeks. You're talking about during the Nimitz yeah. round? Yes, yeah. they, they were tracking numerous uh, objects that were moving off the coast of California and the coast of Mexico. They were descending from probably the sort of maximum detection range of the, of the Aegis uh, cruiser there, which they were seeing some of these things starting to appear on their radar at like 80,000 feet. They have a low radar cross-section, so most conventional radars couldn't even track them, certainly not at any kind of distance. Uh, so, you know, you don't know how high were they coming down from. They right. picked them up at 60,000, 80,000 feet, but where did they start? What was their initial entry point into the atmosphere uh, if they were exoatmospheric at some point? But we don't know that. But we do know that they came in at very high altitudes and then were able to drop, you know, like um, down to 20,000 feet in a matter of, you know, like a split second, drop down to 50 feet when, when Dave Fravor appeared on the scene later that uh, craft was, was hovering at 50 feet over the ocean. Uh, so they have this incredible performance range. There seems to be unlimited time on station. They don't seem to be running out of fuel. They seem to be able to just go all day, which, of course, our aircraft are not able to do at these insane speeds and maneuver unlike anything that, that we know of or understand. And no heat signature. No heat signature, no wings, no, no exhaust, no air intake, you know, what is its means of propulsion? Right. If there's no there's no air intake, there's no exhaust, there's no heat signature, and they're going supersonic without making sound. So there's some theories about that which uh, are are not uh, validated yet. There are attempts to explain that by manipulating space time in the immediate vicinity of the craft that could potentially explain how. Uh, the contents could survive the G-forces because they wouldn't be subjected to them and why they wouldn't, uh, why it wouldn't make sound as it uh, make a shockwave as it crossed the uh, sound barrier and lots of other um, factors associated with this phenomenon. There are some plausible explanations, explanations consistent with science as we understand it, but it's, it would be really exotic technology and way beyond anything that, that we even have on the drawing boards. And so by saying that it manipulates space-time, is there any theory of, of how something like that could be constructed, something that could manipulate space-time? Yes. yes. There's something called an Alcubierre drive, and uh, this is a physicist who developed a theory. It requires insane amounts of energy to do it, but it would enable, in theory, if you could construct something, uh, a device that could do that, to essentially uh, cause this object to act like it was falling. And so the people on board, if there were people or whatever's on board, wouldn't feel those radical uh, G-forces and the object would slip through the atmosphere instead of, instead of like penetrating through the atmosphere, it'd be more like the atmosphere was sort of in front of it was opening up. 
mm. as it as it moved along. Now there was a paper that I saw just a couple of weeks ago that challenges that theory. Um, so perhaps that particular theory is is no longer uh, in good stead in the physics community. But there are some alternative theories along those lines, and of course, there's just so much we don't know. So um, what we do know is what we're observing, and that's really the key. Is and that's part of the problem with this debate is we've got to start with the facts. The theories have to be consistent with the facts. The facts don't have to be consistent with the theories. I mean, you know, we, we work in that direction. We take the facts and we try to come up with hypotheses consistent with that. But too many people look at this and they say, well, it can't be this and it can't be that. So the facts are wrong. Mm. You know, this is what some of the debunkers do. They start yeah. with the premise that it couldn't possibly be any of those things. So he must have been seeing a bubble on his windshield. And, you know, these guys were having a mass delusion. And, oh, by the way, the radar operators were mistaking some weather inversion. And, you know, they just keep adding on as necessary uh, new conditions, which they have no evidence or proof of. None of these things have been identified by anybody. The, none of the debunkers have said, you know, it turned out that was United Airlines flight, blah, blah, blah. Or it was this boat or that, but somebody's drone. Right. These things all remain unidentified. Well, whatever that is, the way it moves off like that in in that video, in the flare video, like try explaining that. Right. I, you know, Chad Underwood, uh, I've heard him on a podcast describe that event. And uh, I actually uh, sent it around to some people because uh, he debunks the debunkers. He's a, he's guy with thousands of hours of cockpit time knows those systems, knows those aircraft. He says, you know, that was instantaneous acceleration, no ifs, ands, or buts. And there's no way that was uh, any kind of conventional aircraft out there. And when you hear the guy talking about firsthand about his experience, and I find that generally with these pilots, when you sit down with them face to face, uh, you know, it's, they're not bullshitting you. It's really clear they're being candid and, and their emotions are honest and uh, they're befuddled like the rest of us. That propulsion system, the way you described it by manipulating space-time, isn't that exactly what Bob Lazar said propels these spaceships that they, mm -hmm. he was working on? Yeah. yeah. Don't you think that's kind of interesting? I understand it. I don't, it's been a long time since I've looked at his theory, but I think you're right. I think that is what he claims the propulsion system does. But that wasn't really a public theory in 1989, was it? I don't know when the Alcubierre drive uh, theory was published. I don't know for sure. But uh, there were other people speculating along those lines, I believe, at that time about mm -hmm. propulsion systems like that. And this idea of this element 115 being this an incredibly dense but stable uh, element that doesn't really exist in, in a stable form here on Earth. That they didn't really have uh, a... a real evidence of this until what was it, like 2013 or something along those yeah, lines? Yeah, there was, there was something that he, um, uh, he did raise that issue and it wasn't until long afterward that, that scientists discovered that I guess that there is, uh, it is possible for it to be stable for some brief period of time, which I think before they thought you just couldn't, right. couldn't bring it together. But it was just detected in a particle drive for the first time in the 2000s, correct? That sounds right, yeah. Yeah, so when he talked about it in 1989, it, was it theor theoretical back then? 
I think it was purely theoretical. I don't think anyone. But it had, was discussed theoretically that there I, was an element. I believe so. So it was sort of like not, the Higgs. I'm boson. not absolutely certain about that. It was sort of like the Higgs boson or something like that. Something that they yeah theoretical mm-hmm. um, particle theoretical idea. What about life forms? What are your thoughts on not just drones? But alien life forms. Do you, I mean, have you ever heard any compelling stories about some biological thing from another planet, whether it's a dead thing or a living thing, that it's been observed or that's been, you know, obtained? I've heard a lot of stories. I bet you and, have. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's so frustrating in this field because it's so hard to get to the to the bottom of these. Right. And uh, undoubtedly, uh, many of them are are not true. Um, they're legends, but there are some that uh, come from, uh, say, like a foreign military, that really make you wonder um, why would they invent this and be, you know, claiming this. Now, you know, maybe it's some guy off his rocker, but. There are some examples like that that uh, that do get your attention, that cause you to to think maybe there's something to this. What has been the most interesting story that you've heard? There was um, there there are a number, but one of them involved a foreign military that uh, had several different interactions and incidents. They had some some military officers that. Uh, uh, allegedly had some contact and a very senior officer allegedly uh, there was a location according to this report where a UFO was appearing uh, sort of nightly and he went out there with some of the guys and on the second or third night this thing lo and hold did appear and he had some interaction with it supposedly and he describes this and describes uh, communications he received um, but you know, there's no independent corroboration of it. What about a body? You know, I, I've heard the rumors like everybody else. I uh, I don't know anything about that. I don't have, I know that people claim that they've seen those things. Nothing beyond that. Yeah, imagine. You know, come here, man. I want to show you something. You know the story about uh, Nixon and Jackie Gleason? I do, yeah. yeah. That's a great one, isn't it? Yeah, there's some... Yeah, there are other stories. Tell me like about the story. There's, Tell me about the story. Well, as I recall, you probably know it better than I do, but but as I recall, uh, Nixon confided in Gleason that yes, indeed, we have aliens, and he arranged for for Jackie Gleason to actually go to to a facility and see this this body or something. I think it was actually a craft. A craft. Okay, you yeah. you, you know the story better than I do. Why don't you go ahead? And then Jackie Gleason actually built a house that was shaped like a UFO. And uh, I think the house was for sale at one point in time. Do you remember that house, Jamie? We, we, uh, we found it online, and you look at it, you go, holy shit, like he built a UFO house. Was that in Palm West, Palm Desert? or I do not remember. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll find out shortly. But this uh, house, uh, at one point in time at least, was for sale, and uh, my wife would never let me buy something like this. But if uh, I was a single man and I was young and stupid which I used to be, I would have bought the shit out of that fucking house <laughs> to, to have Jackie Gleason's UFO house. That's it. Oh, is that it? Yeah. Okay, that's not what I was thinking of. 
Yeah, he what? built a house that looked like a UFO inside of it. Uh, apparently, he was obsessed, and I'm obsessed with Jackie Gleason. I'm a giant Jackie Gleason fan. Yeah. Where was this thing? Mm, it's in New York, I think. Yeah, Westchester County. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's some bucks. comedy that still would work today. Yep. Recently for sale. Yeah. Twelve million. How long ago was this? Twenty eighteen. No shit. Damn. I don't want to live in New York, but if I did, he bought, he built that in 1959. Is that what it said? 59. Mm -hmm. So Nixon wasn't even president. Look at the neighbors. I wonder what they're thinking about that. Uh, maybe he added fucking, it. Let me see. Maybe. They're horrified. Maybe they just fucking pumped and lived near Jackie Gleason. <laughs> well, yeah. When he was there, I'm sure. It was a wild ass house. But the fact that he built a wooden house that re reminded him supposedly of this UFO. I mean, who knows? I mean, it could have been an architect who said, hey, I got an idea. There's a story like that about Spielberg, if you heard that. No. With, I think, Ronald Reagan, and it was one of his iconic alien movies, and uh, Reagan sort of quipped to him something like, yeah, you know, it's really true, or we really have those things, or something like that. It's another really? one of these, yeah, one of these legends, legendary conversations. Um, but maybe in the circles you move in, you could find out. <laughs> I don't know, dude. I don't know if they trust me. bought this house in 1976 for 150 grand. Wow, that seems crazy. <laughs> no, I don't know. That seems crazy. Well, what was 150 grand in 1976 though? It was probably worth a lot of money. 100 grand, that was probably close to a million, right? Still. I know, still. Yeah. House that's that dope. They used to be Jackie Gleason's house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree his uh his comedy probably would translate today. The honeymooners Mm -hmm. It's probably one of the most. If you watch that show today, it's still very funny. I would love for my kids to see that. Yeah, I think, I think it would still work for him. He's also probably the very best pool player, uh, celebrity pool player of all time. That's why they used him in The Hustler uh, with with Paul Newman. He's he was a legitimate like top flight pool hmm. player. Yeah, spent a lot of times. Brilliant guy. Yeah, brilliant guy. Interesting. And, yeah. Just like to get and, drunk. And funny as hell. Yeah. <laughs> and was always drunk. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah. That was his whole, th whole thing, man. He loved getting hammered. He was hammered all the time. There's a funny video of him uh, when he's older uh, on a golf course, and he's got this crazy souped-up golf cart with a, a bar in it. You know? He's out there golfing Living the big drinking. life. Yeah. yeah. Living large. Yeah, he was Literally. a character. <clears throat> yeah. Here's the story funny about guy. Uh, Okay, there Jackie it is. Gleason. Legend has it that Nixon and Gleason uh, uh, drove to a heavily guarded building on Homestead Air Force Base where the leader of the free world gave the guy who played the bus driver from Bensonhurst a private tour. We drove to the very far end of the base in a regulated and a segregated area, finally stopping near a well-guarded building, Gleason told UFO researcher and author Larry Warren, an eyewitness to the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, according to the book UFOs Among the Stars by Timothy Green Beckley. The security police saw us coming and just sort of moved back as we passed them and entered the structure. There were a number of labs we passed through first before we entered a section where Nixon pointed out what he said was the wreckage from a flying saucer enclosed in several large cases. Next, we went to an inner chamber and there were six or eight of what looked like glass-topped Coke freezers. Inside them were the mangled remains of what I took to be children. Then, upon closer examination, 
I saw that some of the other figures looked quite old. Most of them were terribly mangled as if they had been in an accident. Jackie Gleason's wife, Beverly Gleason, told the same story to the magazine Esquire in 1974. It was passed off as a publicity story for her then-upcoming autobiography. Wow. Talks about the house he made, which was somewhere else maybe. I don't know. It says Gleason's 50-foot-wide mothership house was custom-made yeah. by shipbuilders in an airplane hangar and moved to Gleason's property. The structure has no right angles. Van Tassel's integ in Inte Integratron? What is that? Integratron. Integratron was built in the Mojave Desert because of its proximity to the magnetic vortices <laughs> and the relationship to the Great Pyramids. Okay, you lost me there. <laughs> You're getting nutty. They, they always get nutty, right? Yeah, that's the that's, thing about UFO that's stuff. That's one of the problems with this issue. It just goes off the deep end so oh, fast. Always, you know? right? Always. I, I have tried to keep it on national security and kind of nuts yes. and bolts stuff. Stay away from the paranormal stuff. It's that, hard. You know, it is hard because yeah. it goes there fast. Yeah, they a lot of the people that believe in that was one of the things that Terrence McKenna had said about UFOs. It's not whether or not UFOs are real. When you talk to someone and they believe in UFOs, ask them what they think about psychics. Ask them what they think about about ghosts. You know, and then you get these and you go, yeah. "Oh, you're into weird shit. You're into things. You're you're into the unknown." Cuz the unknown is very compelling. And that's part of the problem is it's there's, again, this part of the brain that lights up when you can find out things that we don't know to be true, whether it's Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster or, or UFOs. There's, there's yeah, a lot of people are drawn to this, you know, and again, it's like religion, you know, they, it's the mystery, it's the wonder, it's the yeah. connection to something greater. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, people that are, you know, in the intelligence community, there was this uh, remote viewing program. Yes. And some of those people are also people who are interested in this phenomenon and were involved in it. What's your take on that remote viewing stuff? Well, you know, they seem to have some individuals, they claim, who could perform better than, than chance and could do so consistently. Um, some of their research has been disputed. Uh, so, you know, I don't have a... A strong feeling, but I I do know that some people have had some legitimately crazy experiences. Mm. Uh, you know, the Skinwalker Ranch. There's some strange stuff being documented around there. There was strange stuff documented by Bob Bigelow uh, before the present owner had it. Um, if you read the book Paranormal, uh, you'll hear about incidents that I have uh, discussed with some of the uh, the protagonists in that book and. It's crazy stuff, and they will look you right in the eye. There are people with PhDs, and they'll say, "Yeah, this guy came in the room, and we said, what are you doing in here?' Because it's a classified, you know, facility. Um, and the guy, big guy with uh, one arm missing in a in a, or in a hook or something, and he wheels, turns around, goes out. The guy who's telling the story runs up and grabs the door and opens it. There's nobody in the hallway. This figure looks exactly like supposedly the figure that someone had seen over their bed the night before DOE with this, you know, one-armed guy spinning around. And, you know, you say, well, this is insane. This is nuts. And these are all like sober DOE people who are telling stories like this and other scientists. So um, it's really crazy. It's wild. It's curious. It's intriguing. Some of these people have advanced degrees, and they tell far out, far out stories about some of this stuff. What about tangible things like metallurgy? Like, what about samples of metal 
like samples of various types of metals mm-hmm. and combinations of metals. Yeah, now we're getting back to physical science. Yeah, we can, you know, get grounded. Yeah, one arm spinning guys. So I'm like, yeah, check please. It, right. Um, I understand. <laughs> I get it. I felt the same way. But uh, actually, it's funny you should mention that because there's a private researcher who you've had on the show, Dr. Jacques Vallée. Yeah. Who has some materials, and I think uh, he is on the verge of. Uh, you know, he's going through the peer review process and um, treating it like you would any other scientific issue. And I think he's going to be publishing in a peer review journal some interesting data uh, before too long. I think he's been working on that for a long time. Uh, and there, there are, so there are some examples like that that are serious, incredible. And some of the materials seem to have properties that are difficult to explain that suggest that maybe they were engineered not at the molecular level, but at the atomic level, which would be extremely uh, difficult and expensive to try to replicate. So He was saying that some of these samples, if you were to recreate them with the technology that's available today, it would cost billions of dollars. Yeah. yeah. Which is insane. Exactly. So, you know, obviously nobody was doing that here. Um, so where did it come from? Um, there's also a discussion that the isotopic ratios of these materials in some cases are sufficiently statistically different from what is found in nature in our solar system that it suggests they were born in a different sun, a different star. And all the heavier elements are created in these solar uh, explosions and, and supernovae that cram and fuse these el- you know, protons and, and neutrons and electrons together and create the higher elements, the heavier elements. And um, if they were, you know, in our solar system, they all came from one event. And so iron, wherever it is in our solar system, will have a certain ratio of uh, isotopes that have a few that have an extra uh, neutron or, you know, one more or one less kind of thing. So there's sort of a fingerprint with that. And supposedly, uh, as I understand it, some of these materials um, have a different ratio than you would expect of uh, metal found in our solar system. At least that's one of the things they're looking for and testing for. And then these composites, how do they refer to these composites? Like when, when they, they talk about what these, the way these things are constructed, do they have a, a name for this type of a composite? Uh, well, they're not all, comp- I'm not sure they're all composites, but uh, I've, I've seen some of these materials and they look like they're, some of them look like they're layered, like, like they're yeah. micro-machined to, you know, a millionth of an inch or a few hundredths of an inch or something layered on top of one another with exotic, uh, fairly exotic uh, metals, uh, bismuth and other things that, you know, people aren't normally using. There it is. Yeah, there's one. Alleg- alleged extraterrestrial material from the bottom of a wedge-shaped craft in the late 1940s. May- so well, this is from Roswell, supposedly? Or some other uh, that's, craft. That's one theory. So I think the story behind this is, if I'm not mistaken, is that somebody got this from their their father who claimed he was at the site recovering material. So it gave it gave it to the guy, and this guy turned it over to a researcher. That's the story I've heard. It says it's made from 26 alternating layers, one to four microns dark bismuth, and 100 to 200 microns silver magnesium zinc alloy each of six pieces received from u.s army source were formed with a curvature that was that tapered huh yeah pretty curious stuff 
far as I know, nobody has identified a uh, conventional source for that material or use of it. Um, so it's not like an alloy. It's a very in- intricate process. And what would be the benefit? Is there a theory on what the benefit of making things in so many layers would be? Well, supposedly, you know, one theory about that material is Talk that... Talking to the mic? I'm sorry. One theory about that material is that it uh, is uh, a waveguide for microwave radiation. So it can actually enhance microwave re- emissions um, that could go right through the, the material. And uh, if you were building a craft that was... Uh, wanting to transmit or receive microwave radiation for some purpose, propulsion or otherwise, a material like that might might help you accomplish that. Um, that's one theory I've heard. So the material might help accomplish this bizarre propulsion it, system that we can, totally don't understand. You could have a craft maybe that was also, the shell of the craft was also an antenna, perhaps. Ah. Um, uh, or was... Uh, propagating radiation from the inside more efficiently. Um, I don't know uh, a lot about it, but that's that's one of the explanations that I've heard. Have you physically seen any of these scraps of that. metal? I, yes, yeah. I have. I've seen what did that it look one. like to you when you looked at it? Curious and odd. It was silverish. And, um, you know, people were looking at it trying to think whether it could be from some, you know, known component to some aircraft or ship or something and nobody has identified a uh, conventional industrial counterpart to it something that was manufactured to those specifications for some reason uh, as far as I know so it, it, it was lightweight it was uh, peculiar you touch it in your hands I'm trying to remember if I touched that or not I think we had it right on the table so I, I probably did when you say we who um well, at uh, To the Stars, there was an effort to uh, uh, transfer some, have some of these materials tested and exploited. And um, we were purchasing, the, the company, not me, but the company was purchasing some of the materials to try to facilitate that. So, and so who was in possession of these materials that you could purchase them from? Uh, in some cases, I don't know about that piece. Um, there were some people in the field who have been collectors or researchers and had some material just the way Jacques has probably got materials from 15 or 20 different ma- materials, pieces from different alleged incidents. Uh, wow. One was an explosion uh, of an object in Brazil, for example. Um, so there are, some, there are some items out on the market that, they're around, not many, but there are a few. When you saw this stuff, was that the most compelling piece of evidence that you had ever seen? No, I, I'm actually uh, very agnostic about that. I think I haven't seen any test results. Uh, I'm, I'm completely agnostic as to whether it's something that was produced on Earth for some obscure per- reason um, or whether it's something more exotic. I'm not particularly impressed by that. What impresses me most, uh, I, I think if I could point to one thing, it would be the Nimitz case. Really? Yeah. There's just, there's, yeah, that's, that would be, there, there's, there's some other stuff that uh, is interesting and impressive that is uh, not yet uh, available. But in terms of the stuff we can talk about, I would say that's the single most compelling thing. 
Now, what can be done in terms of with the, the government? What can be done to study this stuff more carefully? Do, do, does a whole new department need to be developed? Does, does all these pieces of evidence, the Nimitz case, the Go Fast video, the Gimbal video, all the stuff we're talking about, do you think this merits enough attention? Does this give enough people curiosity to the point where you could see them, the government investing a considerable amount of capital and resources to studying this stuff on a much deeper level? I do. Um, I think advanced propulsion, uh, this suggests there may be some new avenues that, uh, because, you know, there's proof of principle. We're seeing something doing this. It can be done. And there's some theories, as I mentioned, like the Alcubierre Drive and, and others, uh, probably ought to be putting some money on those, investigating them, looking at them. Um, I do think there needs to be some organizational home for this. There needs to be an advocate, somebody who is monitoring this and uh, fighting for some money for it in the budget, Not doesn't need a huge amount. Uh, somebody to send the reports to. You know, people right now, they've temporarily got this task force uh, that was established, but when that goes away, if there's not some enduring entity left behind, you know, where does all this stuff go? And does anybody care about it? Or does it just, do we go back to the status quo ante where, you know, it just falls on the floor and nobody cares? So I think we're getting to the point, I hope we're getting to the point where people are saying, yeah, these not, we can learn a lot from anomalies. In science, that's one of the, the ways breakthroughs most often occur, right, is some anomaly that is baffling, uh, like the precession of mercury in Einstein. And you know, Newton's theories couldn't explain that. It's this weird outlier. And then he came along with general relativity, perfectly explained it, bingo. There's some strange anomalies going on here in our atmosphere worth our attention. And yes, we ought to be studying it. And there ought to be a centralized place where this stuff comes together. And, uh, you know, maybe a federal lab kind of a thing. I, I, I'm not an advocate of big new organizational structures and throwing billions of dollars at things. I don't think you need to, but I think we could more effectively coordinate space-related research, for example, in R&D than we do today. Um, so we have DOE labs uh, for nuclear energy and nuclear power. We don't have something like that that universities and NASA and the military can work with uh, on the space side. So something like that that was flexible, that would give people a chance to partner from different backgrounds and you know academia and so forth uh, with the government uh, is probably something that we could benefit from. Is this something that's Plausible? Is there enough interest in the government to in, in the government currently to do something like this to make some new department? I mean, could it be justified? It, not a new department. Not like no, not no. like the new Department of Energy or so Agriculture. Not, not a whole new department. No, this would be uh, within existing entities. Which uh, entity do you think? Uh, probably DoD. Um, there's already so much capability and authority and responsibility there. And there are some people in the community um, that are standing up, actually, and saying they want to be involved. There are some people in the in the military, in the Defense Department, that would like to uh, get involved in researching this. And how many people would have to be involved um, to do it correctly? How many people do you think would have to be involved? Like, say if they put it on you. They said, listen, nobody knows more about this stuff than you do. How do you go about doing this? And how many people would need to be involved? And where do you start? And how do you observe these things? And could we be doing something to maybe observe more of them 
to maybe absolutely yeah what could we be doing to observe more of them so yeah there's a lot we could do and i don't have a precise number for people but i could tell you some of the things i'd be thinking about wanting to scope to drive a number so one of the things we haven't done yet is go into these existing databases from these incredible collection systems like the ballistic missile early early warning system and if they've seen ufos they're not reporting it but their systems are optimized to look for very specific kinds of things like an icbm and they want to reduce clutter so the other stuff is not displayed to the operator people in the op center don't even see it but it's in the database there's a lot of databases like that where if we just pulled the data and had some contractors run it we might find some really interesting signatures and patterns which would then help us get a handle on the phenomenon and where we ought to be looking going forward so that would take some money to get some contractors to do that and there are a number of different systems that i would want to do that on the space-based infrared system the global acoustic monitoring system some other systems global acoustic monitoring system that would be what would that be doing so that is uh, listening for low frequency vibrations in the atmosphere and it's a uh, it was built and designed to detect nuclear weapons tests and i understand that it also detects meteors and bolides and I've heard rumors that it detects other things that, that they haven't been able to explain. I haven't been anybody get anybody to take a look at that yet. I've suggested that to the to various people in the government. You know, you might want to go talk to those guys, look at that database. I don't think anybody has. But there's a lot of systems like that that are incredible. We have the public, you know, look at the, uh, the moving X-band radar, if you could bring that up, sea-based uh, X-band radar. Uh, or the DARPA Space Telescope. Um, there's this, the, the DOD Space Fence. Uh, there's amazing capabilities out there. We're not even, you know, mining that data. Do we know, has anybody ever said that these things make a sound? People have said they've heard humming sounds at close range, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, that's, but, but never a sonic boom. And but no, uh, no occasionally, sound. A, sometimes it's like a swooshing sound. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that the sort of hum or vibration, like a transformer, a number of people who've been close to these things have said it's made a sound like that, like a transformer. Did Bob Lazar ever say that it made a sound? I don't know. I don't know. I, I've not, not had that discussion with him. So that would be how you would, you would, you would use but in, in this case actually it's the movement through the atmosphere it's not mm -hmm. the right. it's not like the transformer noise it's just the size and velocity in the air that's displaced creates this this wave in the atmosphere but that was what i was ripples through the air asking because of this unusual propulsion system that it's that we theorize they have that they yeah, yeah, somehow right. might not make that kind right. of wave. Yeah, might make not make any sound at all. You're right. You're right. They, they might find nothing there. It's a good possibility. But I, my thought is, we're paid for this stuff already. Why don't we look? We got the data. You know, let's take right. a look. And these different databases, and then you might find ah, this system and this system are showing us some really weird stuff. And we see things in orbit, and they're coming out of orbit, and they're going back to orbit, and we don't know what they are. We got to focus on that. That's really interesting. Um, we, we could probably uh, plausibly spend a reasonable amount of money and uh, make a lot of headway in trying to identify what are the signatures that these things give off that we can then begin to track with this huge system that we have uh, that's, that's global and in outer space. 
uh, then I would want to spend some money on propulsion and probably have some money, you'd need some money for uh, testing some theories. Um, the nuclear weapons issue that you mentioned, uh, monitoring our nuclear weapons, if that's going on, and there are a lot of reports, um, supposedly in 1973, it's a story I just heard the other day from a, from a foreign correspondent. During the 73 war, when we went to DEFCON 2, um, in Australia, a UFO appeared over a uh, Navy communication system for, for submarine-launched ballistic missiles and just hovered for about a half an hour. Again, unverified, but, you know, this is the story. Well, if that kind of thing has any plausibility in these reports about interfering with, with uh, RSABMs, you might set up a collection event when you know we're going to be moving some things because it's a pre-planned exercise or something. So maybe you, you keep an eye out and set some special collection up just in case something does get triggered by that or happens. That would be pertinent to the Chinese and Russians uh, uh, as well. I mean, that would be nothing that would be higher on their collection list than trying to understand any kind of new technology we had having to do with nuclear weapons. So you might learn something, again, not saying it's aliens, you, you know, it would be worth doing. Do we know anything about the way China or Russia views these things? Not much. Uh, they, both countries have active UFO groups, and the government seems to be connected to both of them and allowing them to exist and maybe encouraging them, uh, probably getting some intelligence from them. They read our papers and they, they may well listen to this podcast, for example. They've got some people trying to figure out what's going on with the Americas. Have they really got this technology or is this from somewhere else? Uh, at least that's uh, part of what, what appears to be happening. But they certainly have had their own incidents and uh, over the years. Um, we've been told about that. And uh, one of the famous incidents that we had actually during Blue Book occurred in Russia and it was a U.S. senator who was visiting Russia, and he and some of the staff, while they were in Russia, it was, um, uh, it was one of the senators, it was a majority leader or a speaker of the House, very prominent U.S. politician who was on a, a rare Cold War visit to the Soviet Union and saw this flying saucer from the train he was on, and other people there saw it. That, that was one that went into the Blue Book files. Uh, so they, you know, certainly have had incidents as well. So it, 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 is there another country that has uh, a strong interest in UFOs besides China and Russia that we're aware of? Yes. Uh, France has had an official UFO investigative group for probably decades. And small office, small budget, but they every year take, say, the top six cases from the police and the military and analyze them and bring in some scientists and engineers and see what they can, can make of that. Um, so they've been doing that for a long time, and there have been years where they've had more UFO reports, at least per capita, than we have. Really? Yeah. Uh, this is very much a global phenomenon. So uh, they've, they've been having these experiences for a long time, since the 40s or 50s. And they have a more open-minded approach to it? They do. I, I would say it's the, the stigma that we have doesn't exist at least to that degree over there. They're more objective, scientific. Their UFO groups tend to be less fantastical um, and more sort of focused on, on science. Um, seems to be quite a bit of a different attitude and approach over there. So if the president had 
uh, listened to this podcast and took an interest in this and wanted to have a conversation with you, what do you think you would tell them? What, uh, what could, I would tell him, said, what, what could I, I, I would focus on how to get the answers to the to the key questions to get to the bottom line and the truth. Who you need to talk to, who you need to get on the carpet, and uh, and put it to, and so you can really get to the bottom of this thing. And you think that we could make some progress in that direction if we were if we took the right steps. I think. I think certainly if we did some of the things I was talking about, we'd be better off. We'd gain some new knowledge and insight. Where that takes us is hard to say. It might, you know, different directions it could go, but we, we'd be better off for it. Um, mining these anomalies can be very profitable. And uh, I've suggested creating an office called the Office of uh, Strategic Anomaly Resolution. So when our increasingly technical intelligence community detects things that are really weird and anomalous, like this business of these beams that are, you know, we're hitting the people in the Havana embassy and you need some really yeah. smart technical people, you've got something just really weird. You have a sort of group of scientists and engineers who are focused that you can take these kinds of things to and they can figure out what to do with it or where to take it. Did they ever figure out what those beams in the Havana embassy were? <sighs> nope, not to my knowledge. And it's happened now recently in DC near the White House according to some recent reports. So you explain uh, that to people? What it, what it so is, what, what we're talking are? about is <clears throat> employees of the, um, of the U.S. government in Havana, uh, mostly, but elsewhere, um, in addition to, to Havana, uh, have started feeling uh, very ill, um, headaches, a, a range of symptoms, loss of energy, and it seems that they have been targeted with some kind of a... Uh, RF weapons, some kind of electromagnetic radiation from a distance. And we do know that the Russians in particular have been developing devices like that for decades. And they used to use them on our embassy in Moscow all the time uh, for different kinds of collection purposes, different techniques. So that's suspicious. Cuba is a country where they could uh, plausibly test something like that and have a degree of deniability. Um, they've got, you know, freedom of action down there. They're still one of the few supporting governments that supports the, the regime there. So it's someplace they might undertake further testing in, in a real world setting if they wanted to. Um, it's something that could be mobile and um, not clear what the objective is, whether it's to uh, make people sick or whether is this incidental. They're trying to get stuff off the computers and the people just happen to be close to the computers and they're trying to, you know, put a beam through there that scrapes energy off the screen or something or, you know, we don't really know. But uh, it, it seems, there seems to be a pattern to this stuff. Uh, my friend Mike Swick, shout out to Mike Swick. Uh, he used to uh, work for the, I think it was the Secret Service, and they had an embassy in uh, Moscow, and they detected um, these devices that mm -hmm. the Soviet Union had installed inside the walls that were listening devices that were powered by the movement of the building in the wind. Interesting. I remember- I don't know if that's true. That's what he told me. I, I absolutely, does that make sense? I, it does. He said it was so sophisticated oh, and it was so beyond anything that we had. When we were building the new U.S. Embassy- I hope I didn't fuck that story up, Mike. <laughs> he told me it a long time ago. 
I, I know that we found antennas embedded in the concrete of the U.S. Embassy as it was being constructed, the new embassy, that brought the entire construction to a halt. The thing listening device, this it? Yeah. Okay, let me just say. before. You've heard of it before? Yeah, well, I think we've even maybe talked. Maybe that's why, because we oh, talked okay. about it on here. Known as the oh, great seal bug. Yeah, this one is of the first great... covert listening devices or bugs to use passive techniques to transmit an audio signal. It was concealed inside a gift given by the Soviet Union to W. Averill Harriman, mm -hmm. United States ambassador to Soviet Union, August 4th, 1945, because it was passive needing electromagnetic energy from an outside source to become energized and activate. It's considered a predecessor of radio frequency identification technology. I don't think that's exactly what he was talking about. He was talking about these bugs that were, um, they were actually powered by, you know, and the wind moves, a, you know, like your watch. Like, kinetic Yeah, energy. you have a watch. It's yeah. an automatic watch. Yeah. You move your watch, and that's what powers the watch. They've been exploring all kinds of things like that, and... We actually, it cost the U.S. taxpayer hundreds of millions because halfway through the construction of the new U.S. Embassy, they found in the concrete forms antenna shapes that we made no sense to us. We didn't know what the hell they were. And uh, weird designs and shapes that were, they were intercepting some of our stuff and modifying it or using construction people outside of our supervision to to do this and they had other things with the pipes and the wires and you know they had all kinds of it's attacks on the embassy yeah and some of it you know looked like uh physics that that was hard for us to understand so i'm not surprised by that story someone recently claimed that uh they that about the pyramid things that were flying over the ship that it was vlad that's there was uh, some soviet guy said that it was vladimir putin's creations uh, or you know from me, the Soviet Union, it, he, of he has uh, claimed. We have validated the fact that he has developed a nuclear missile that is kind of like imagine a nuclear cruise missile with incredible range and uh, maneuverability. Um, so that's something I don't know how much success they've had with it, but they really do have a, a project like that, and they have done some testing. Uh, so there have been some advances under his. Uh, under his time there, under his tenure, but uh, I don't know. I don't think I've I've not heard anything about triangular objects. You know. No, I'm, I'm sure it's like it's Vlad, former senator, says no question UFOs buzzing over U.S. warships are from Russia. The former senator condemns the Pentagon for admitting it cannot identify the strange objects. So this is a former U.S. senator. Oh, it's Harry Reid. Mm -hmm. Do you know Harry Reid? I do, but not well, but I I do know him. So he believes that. And he's a big UFO supporter, he right? Is. He's a big believer. He is. He He's tried to solve this problem from, from the congressional side of, of terms of the lack of interest in the U.S. government by putting some money on it, which created this ATIP program, the Advanced uh, Airborne Identity Threat Program, uh, Advanced Aerospace uh, Threat Program. So uh, he's been involved for a long time, been very curious about this, wanting to see some answers. Um, but he has been very active, extremely active. Well, Chris, this has been a very enlightening and interesting conversation, and I, I really appreciate your time. Um, and I really appreciate your openness to discussing this stuff, because I know it does for a person that's a, you're a serious person. It's, it does open you up to ridicule. Uh, you know, in my community, I don't think there's any doubt that, uh, that uh, there are people making jokes about me behind my back and that kind of thing, but... You know, I knew that was going to happen going into this. Right. And to me, it's 
there's a principle here, a very uh, cherished principle. And I think you just have to do the right thing at the end of the day, which you believe in. Well, I also think there's enough evidence at this point in time, and thankfully, because of the New York Times article from 2017, it's lo- loosened a lot of the stigma attached to it. And a lot of this, like we showed, the gimbal, the flare, the go-fast video, this is wild shit. And if we can't explain it, I mean, you can't just bury your head in the sand and pretend it doesn't exist. Amen. That's that's my uh, that's my view as well. Do you have any? Uh, I know you're no longer with uh, To the Stars Academy. Do you have any official uh, role in this stuff anymore? Nothing official. I stay in touch with people and try to help when I can, and and that's about it. All right, man. Well, keep us posted, and if any new information comes out and you want to break it, you're you're always welcome. Okay. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, sir. Appreciate, Appreciate it. you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. you bet. Goodbye, everybody.